בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, always great to be in Miami. Continuing our פרקי אבות series, I believe today is number 25, or no, 26. Yesterday, שיעור, we had someone, like we called it, the divine self-help book, because the previous משנה, the פרק ב', משנה יוד גימל, was a uh, really much like a self-help book. The foundation of all self-help books are in order to improve yourself, improve your life. In essence, really all of Pirkei Avot is about helping yourself. But the Mishnah of uh, 13 and then chapter 2 was uh, specifically about how to live a good life. So B'zad Hashem, today we'll go into 14, Mishnah 14, which is uh, the other half. The other half of the same Mishnah, in essence, it's going to be the opposite of yesterday. So, Abizot Hashem, we'll, uh, we'll go over some of those details and some new, uh, new updates. Uh, also, before we forget, uh, the Shio will be to Refuah Shlema, to Moreno Varabeno, Rabbi Ephraim Kachlon, may Hashem give you Refuah Shlema, also to my mom, Doris Bat Jora, David Ben Nesriya, uh, Levana Bat Sarah, Sarah Bat Levana, um, and Michel Koto, Yoshua Michael Ben Hadassa, David Gamliel Ben Hadassa, Sarah Bat Sarah, Amparo Balufe, Ruven Yosef Ben Rivka, Edil Magorero, Sarah Lekopsky. This is a new one. <laughs> Gladys Nunez, uh, Bill Deutschman, Josefina Matos, and Jacqueline Rojas. May Hashem give them refuah shlema, refuah tenefesh, refuah aguf. Keep this one, so we don't have to keep writing. Without Hashem, we have a, uh, all of Amisa needs a lot of refuah. Sometimes, again, it's the uh, nefesh, sometimes it's the goof. Right now, we have this ongoing war that's happening uh, with a, we uh, must fighting Christianity, fighting idol worship, that's an assimilation that's infiltrating our Jewish communities and our Jewish minds where uh, we're having this whole balagan that's happening in Boca Raton where uh, the leadership there has decided to uh, to bring a missionary to motivate the Keilah uh, in, uh, in different ways and we've been trying to do everything possible to shed light to the Keilah itself, to people around, to Am Yisrael all over the world, to G'dolei Ador, to everyone that this is a Aside from being a sin and against the Torah in many, many different ways, and being a chilu Hashem, uh, but aside from all that, it's just a really bad idea. It's just a really, really bad idea. Uh, and uh, yesterday was another way that uh, we tried to unravel this rotten onion, uh, trying to figure out how could something like this happen. Like, how can people that apparently have learned Torah most of their life make such a horrendous error where, in essence, you're inviting Hitler to a bar mitzvah and you're saying, no, he's just going to eat. He's just going to eat. He's just, he's, just he's just here for Birkat HaMazon. He's just going to do a blessing. Like, it's, it's, you, know, you can't say, listen, he's a missionary, but today he's off duty. He's only here to motivate us. It's just a really stupid idea. Like, how could you make such a stupid idea? And even a better question is, how could such smart people, 
not one or two or three or, or four people. It's a bunch of people. There's the rabbi, the head rabbi. There's the ones that are his little minions that you know supposed to give him uh, some uh, some uh, also. The flash to Rosa. Iris Matos. How could, you know, he made a mistake, fine. But he also has underlings. How could they make mistakes? And they have underlings. How could they make mistakes? And they're, they're, all, they're all married. Usually, you know the situation that you really, really are based on your mirror. But who's your mirror? Your spouse. Your spouse is your mirror, not uh, the real mirror. And that's one of the things that people fail to understand is that this is not just one part of the chain of command failing. This is multiple parts that are failing one after another. And it's very, very hard to understand is how can we make such a horrendous, horrendous mistake? Now, I don't know. I'm no prophet or anything even close to that. But one thing I know is that apparently the one main thing we, you know, we failed at is that we feel that seeing the nolad, seeing the outcome of our actions, time and time again throughout all of history, not just today, this is not the first time, and unfortunately probably not the last time, where we do things based on thinking, no, no, this is fine, this is it's no big deal. I'll just drive today on Shabbat, but next week I'm going to go back to being a Shemel Shabbat. I'll just eat this non-kosher burger today, but tomorrow I'm back, I'm back to being kosher. I'm just going to go out with one date with this non-Jewish girl, and next week I'm going to find a Jewish one. Everyone says this one time, this one time, and then I'm going to go back. This one time, this one little sin, and then I'm going to be kosher again. I'm going to do this again. We fail to see that the Chazal, the, 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 the sayings of the, of the sages, the teachings of the sages, come true on a regular basis. And they say that mitzvah goeret mitzvah, avera goeret avera. One mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. And one sin leads to another one. And we fail to realize that our actions have consequences. There's no such thing as one date. Maim gnuvim imtaku. Maim gnuvim imtaku means stolen water is sweeter. Meaning, in a, th- a hypothetical sense, if you have two bottles of water here, Two bottles of water, they're both water. They're both exactly the same thing. They're both Fiji or spring water or whatever it is. They're both the same thing. But one of them, I'll tell you, no, this one, I actually stole it from the store. Your Yetzirah is going to tell you that the stolen one, that's the one you should drink. It's sweeter. Tastes better. It's the same water. But your, your Yetzirah is going to tell you, no, the stolen one, that's better. So, sometimes we think, listen, the... Torah, yeah, we learned it already in school. We went to yeshiva. We watched a few shirim online. We go to Beknesset a few times a week. We hear the drasha of the rabbi. But we never hear a Christian speak. They're smart too, right? You know, this uh, it even says, if the chokhmah bagoyim ta'aminu, you know, if, there's, if someone tells you that the goyim have wisdom, you can believe it. But Torah bagoyim no ta'aminu. But if they, they tell you that the goyim no Torah, you're not allowed to believe that. Now, the one thing that that's what a lot of people are saying, listen, so, so what if he's a uh, non-Jew? Why can't you learn from him? Two reasons. Number one, it's not a matter of being Jewish and non-Jewish. The Chazal said, Chochmah Bagoim, says, wisdom in the non-Jews. It referred to Bnei Noach. It referred to 
people that are still worshipping Hashem, not some idol. Not chokhmah b'minim. Minim are idol worshippers and heretics. So first and foremost, if someone that's a ben Noah, someone that's a righteous Gentile, says, listen, I know I have the wisdom of architecture. I have the wisdom of math. I have wisdom of all types of wisdom that they have. You're allowed to believe that he has this wisdom. But if he is an idol worshipper, you're not even allowed to be within four amot of him. Within six feet of him, you're not allowed to stand. If he's an idol worshiper. That's to that extent, Chazal was very, very critical of this. But even so, even so, even if you're talking about, let's say you say, listen, they have a non-Jewish, you know, a, a Gentile Einstein. There's plenty of non-Jewish geniuses. Chazal didn't say, Chochmah Bagoim, go and learn. They said, if they say that this guy knows architecture, you can believe him. If they say this guy is a guru in whatever subject, you're allowed to believe that he has this wisdom. But it doesn't say, listen, go over there and go learn from him. It didn't say, listen, leave your rabbi, <laughs> leave the shul, leave everything and go learn there. Or bring him better yet, bring him to shul. No, I never said that. It says if they say that they have some type of wisdom, it's fine as long as they don't tell you they know Torah. Because Torah is only Am Yisrael you're allowed to learn. But even so, even if he's a genius, even if he's not an idol worshiper, even if he's a righteous Gentile, didn't say go out and chase him for his knowledge. So that's the one thing that we keep failing to understand. And the problem with this is that it seems like the chokhmah of the goyim, the wisdom of the goyim, it seems like it's more interesting. It seems like it's more taboo. Seems like it's, ah, wow, it's more exciting. I hear the rabbi all the time. Let me go hear some non-Jew teach. But the sad reality is that most of us fail to understand that anything that's any good, anything that's any good in this world, whether it's all types of wisdom, all types of beauty, all types of everything that's any good in this world, must have a source in the Torah. Meaning you don't have to go out and look for it. It's here already. Just look for it in our books. Look for it from our teachers. Where you want motivation, you want to learn about love, you want to learn about how to have a fulfilling life, you want to learn about happiness, you want to learn about connection to Hashem, you want to learn about business, you want to learn about law. Whatever you want to learn, it's already in the Torah. You just have to know which book to look. And this is the reason why I say you're allowed to believe that the Goim possess wisdom, but it didn't say go chase it and find out what they're saying. Just say, okay, if they say they have it, fine. If they happen to, you know, you have a service you, they, they provide and you want to use them, you're allowed to use them as long as it's not a mean. As long as it's not an idol worshiper or someone that goes against the Torah on a regular basis. And unfortunately, someone that's an idol worshiper is an enemy of Hashem. It's not, a, it's not my definition. It's the Torah definition. Now, this means that there are a lot of enemies of Hashem. Some of them are doing it electively. Some are doing it not on purpose. Now, a person that was born Christian, his whole life was taught Christianity. It's the only thing he ever knew. And he thinks that uh, Jesus is the Messiah. That's not necessarily uh, a mean to the same extent as this Matthew Kelly Catholic missionary 
Why? Because the poor little kid that grew up and became an adult only believing that there's some type of, uh, you know, that Jesus is a Messiah. He's obviously misled. He's obviously wrong. He's obviously completely off. But that's all he ever was taught. And he should believe he's a, he's a Messiah. Just unfortunately, just like some Jews believe that their rabbi is a Messiah. Both are wrong. But he's not actively looking to go take Jews and bring them to idol worship. He's not saying that Jesus is God, even though technically his book says it. He's not going out there and trying to recruit other people that are going to be missionaries themselves and go recruit other people to idol worship. And that's the, that's the biggest problem of all. When someone is a missionary, there's no one worse than him. No one worse than him. And the reason why is because their number one target are not the Arabs. Even though there's 2 billion Arabs in the world, no one's trying to missionize Arabs. If you ever know, everyone or anybody noticed, there's really no, like, you know, recruit centers in Arab villages. Oh, let's try to recruit the Arabs and make them into, into, into Christians? No, it just doesn't happen. There are some Arabs that are Christians, but it's not because of missionaries. They're not going into China and, like, actively missionizing even though there's a billion and a half to two billion people there. Where do they spend most of their resources? What's the number one biggest fish? The Jews. The Jews, that's it. That's the, it's the Jews. So, unless we look at the past, we're never going to be able to clearly see what the future is going to hold. Now, unfortunately, many of us, and I see this online, and I myself was foolish enough to celebrate this Tavat Hashem holiday that they had yesterday. Um, Tavat Hashem means disgusting to Hashem. Called Valentine's Day. Yesterday they had Valentine's Day. Many many Jews believe, you know, it's like, oh, it's a, it's a holiday of love. Even in Israel they promote that it's a holiday of love. Uh, and some people celebrate it. It's just an excuse to go buy chocolates and teddy bears and Go have fun with your girlfriend, wife, or both. Um, and people think it's a harmless holiday. What's the big deal? The only way we can realize what's the big deal is, number one, by looking at history. If you rewind approximately 700 years to 1349, you see that something horrendous happened during that time. Now, anti-Semitism has already was created in Parashat Shmot over 3,300 years ago, where Paro said, well, let's fool them, let's fool these uh, Israelites before they fool us, before they overcome us and join one of our enemies. So anti-Semitism has already been around over 3,000 years. But 700 years ago, anti-Semitism took another turn once again, and because the Jews were not allowed to celebrate freely, learn freely, we're already living a secluded life. But to make our life even more miserable, they wouldn't even allow us to have normal jobs. The only job they allowed us to have throughout Europe was to be lenders, lend money. Bankers, in, in so many words. We were only allowed to lend money. Now... Back then, they thought that's like, a, you know, it's, 
You're lending money. You don't actually do anything. You just lend money. It's like a crappy job. In reality, if you fast forward, you realize that's the best job in the world. You actually don't have to do much. You lend money. You get paid for extra of art. It's a good job. As a matter of fact, eventually you get to a point where your money works for you so much that you control the economy. You control the market. You control everything because everyone owes you money. This is also the reason why I always told my clients and anyone that ever asked when people would be scared about the relationship between the United States and China ever breaking where they were saying, listen, you know, uh, maybe the United States is not going to do trades anymore with China because they're, you know, stealing their brands, they're stealing their goods, there's hundreds of billions of dollars worth of copyrights and all types of patents that are stolen by the Chinese every single year. You know, and we have to fight back. And, you know, now Trump is there and Trump is like anti-import-export practically now, especially with China. He's going to tax it. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. Let me fast forward really quick for everyone. It's all bogus. It's all nonsense. It will never happen. The relationship between America and, and China will always be. And the reason why is because China is the bank. China lent the United States an extraordinary amount of money. But it's not like if I ask you, listen, can you lend me 20 bucks and I just take $20? And, you know, I could easily forget about it. And, you know, and then you'd ask me a few months later, I'd say, ah, you know, I don't remember. Do you have a study, Scott? I don't remember that you gave me this $20. Difference is with China is they bought T bills. <clears throat> they, in essence, have a control of a large part of the debt market for the United States. And even if they wanted to get out of it, they'd have to go into the open market. They can't just like, you know, send an email to the, to the United States and say, hey, cash this one out for me. They have to go into the open market, which means that as they start selling it, you know, initially they sell the first few billion dollars, it doesn't really make a difference. But once they start going into larger numbers, 25, 50, 100 billion dollars, the market will notice it, the market will start crashing. Which means that two things will happen. The United States will lose because the market will start crashing. And China will lose because the value of the existing debt they have will also go down. So let's say they have a trillion dollars worth of debt. They sold the first, after they sold the first hundred billion, sounds great. They, let's say they sold it for part. They sold it for a hundred billion. Problem is by the time everyone finds out they sold a hundred billion dollars worth of debt, the remaining 900 billion will go down by 50%. Okay, so they got their money back for 100, but the other 400 they just lost instantly. As soon as the market realized they're about to sell a trillion dollars worth of debt, everyone's selling everything, which is in essence called murder suicide. So this is a unhappy marriage, but the reality of it is they're going to suffer together forever. Unless one of them is willing to just, you know, pretty much commit murder, you know, do murder-suicide, you know, in essence, destroy their own economy and, you know, rebuild it from scratch. Very, very rare thing to happen. So, China is going to stay China, America is going to stay America, but everyone's going to talk big and promise a lot of big things, but in reality, none of that stuff is going to happen. Now, in the 1300s, the Jews were in control of the debt market. In different parts of Europe, in a place called Strasbourg, the Goim 
started realizing that these Jews that were supposed to be no ones, were supposed to be practically borderline slaves, actually have a hold of the market. And they didn't like it too much. So they decided that, hey, you know, not only do they have a control of the market that we don't want them to have, but on top of it, they are very arrogant right now. They feel very confident. And on top of it, we really can't say much because we're the ones that owe them the money. So unlike today, when you owe money to the credit card, then really the biggest thing they could possibly do is send you a million and a half notices. Back then, you could do something. What did they do? They decided to murder all of them. They overran the government and the few people that were trying to protect the Jews. They threw them out. All protection laws for the Jews were dismissed. And they had a massacre on February 14th, 1349, and killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jews and burned them alive. And today, Jews around the world celebrate this February 14th, this Valentine's Day. Oh yeah, I love my girlfriend. Yeah, but you realize that your great-great-great-great-grandfather was burned alive? You still going to send a box of chocolates? What was the place at? Strasbourg, in Europe. Strasbourg. So, and this was in different places in Europe, but the biggest massacre happened there. Nonetheless, people need to understand that the only way we're going to have even a chance of surviving in the future is by looking at our past. The only way we could survive anything that's happening right now in the times we live in, which we call the end of days, is by having some type of connection to our past. If we see the past, we saw that for the last 2,000 years, the Christians and Catholics chased Jews in every way, shape, or form. Whoever was not willing to uh, convert to Christianity, most times they murder them. Today, Baruch Hashem, we're not in that situation. No Christian or Catholic is openly murdering any Jews. That's good, Baruch Hashem, but unfortunately, they're doing something worse. They're convincing many weak Jews, many naive Jews, to instead of just killing their body, which I'm not trying to discount, but it's still, according to our Torah, the body is not worth as much as the soul. It's much better to die as far as in flesh than to have a soul rotten in hell forever. And that's actually what's happening. When many Jews are getting to a point where they're taking the offer from the Christians because of poverty, lack of emunah, and different reasons. And that's why the Christians spend hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in Israel and probably billions of dollars in the rest of the world, especially the United States, to do everything and any, anything possible to recruit Jews to join Christianity. And that's why every time you see any type of Jews for Jesus commercial or any times you uh, see any type of Christian commercial, usually the speakers are Jewish. The speakers are Jewish. Why does they look? They know it's true. Because we're, you know, we're the banner child. We're, we're, we're the ones that are attesting that Hashem gave the Torah in Mount Sinai. So if that one that says that we got the Torah in Sinai is now saying that there's also an extension to the story called the New Testament, it's the best verification in the world. So obviously this is horrendous. And they're killing and destroying thousands of souls every week. So to now, 
bring them into our house like they're doing it already on their own. They're chasing us, they're finding us, and every single crack, you're going to find something missionary. People think that the AA meetings, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, are like, you know, they're good, they help people. But in reality, it's the best recruiting centers for missionaries. Most of the meetings are held in churches. They have everyone pray as if it's like kumbaya and everyone is at peace and everyone's uh, happy. But in reality, what is it? It's a church and they're trying to have, there's always a missionary that used to be an alcoholic or still is perhaps. But Jesus helped them or something else helped. It's a great recruiting agency for them. And many other things like this. It's a very, very sneaky, conniving way of doing things, but that's just the reality. And unless the Jew is bright and starts looking at his past, he's not going to survive the future. He's just not going to survive. And this is exactly what's happening with some of our leaders that have become so weak, and in some cases so spineless, that for a little bit of money, for a little bit of funding for their organization, for their synagogue, for their cause. They're selling Jewish souls. Yeah, listen, you know, donate a million dollars to our organization. We'll let one of your uh, motivational speakers come to our event. In reality, it's Missionaries Anonymous. It's not a motivational speaker. But that's what happens when... We close one eye. Close one eye because what? We say, no, no, but with the million dollars, I'm going to build a bigger shul. We'll fit more Jews. Problem is, with the million dollars, by the time you actually build that shul, there'll be no Jews left. There's not going to be anyone left. You keep letting the missionaries in. And that's what people just, they don't see the nolad. They don't see the outcome of their actions. Foundational reason of all of it, lack of Yilat Shemayim. Lack of fear of Hashem. Lack of connection, to, real connection to Hashem, where you don't ask yourself, what does God think about this? You ask, what does my banker think about it? What does my neighbor think about it? What does my editor and publicist think about it? Is this going to sell books? Is this going to be marketable? Is this going to make me liked? And this is why sometimes you have people completely go off and write books like Kosher Jesus, like this Shmuli Boteach, Kofel, Rasha Merusha that he is. He used to call him, he calls himself a rabbi still this day. But the guy's a Kofel. Why? He made it seem as if like it's okay to believe in J.C. Penny. Now if a Christian wrote such a book, who cares? They wrote a million books already. No one ever pays attention to their books that has any chokhmah, any knowledge. Problem is, when a Jew writes it, it's the worst thing in the world. It's almost like they look at it, it's like Moses wrote it. Wow. That's the viewpoint. That's also why a Jew is always highlighted in the news anytime he does anything bad. Mm-hmm. It's true. Anytime he does anything bad, mm-hmm. everyone is highlights him. You have a, uh, a few Christian people catch a big uh, white shark. It's like, wow, let's put that on Discovery Channel. You have a few Hindus, Hindus 
catch a great white shark, it's like, wow, take some pictures, put it on Facebook. You have a couple of Jews. Catch a great white shark, it's like, look, these animals are going to be extinct because of these Jews. And all of a sudden it becomes different. All of a sudden the excuse changes. Everyone else does something, it's chazaku Jews do it? Ah. It's just a reality. It's just a reality of life. So to go and invite them into our house, I mean, are you retarded? Is something wrong with you? And I, I just don't understand how blind we really are. Now, maybe somebody is just blind, but, you know, you give one proof and another proof and another proof and another proof. How many proofs do you want? You have a month worth of proofs. Every single day, we've had another proof. Every day, we've had another proof. Every day, we're publishing more proofs. Even got to the point where it was even their own words. No one wants to listen so far. So, Bezat Hashem, we're going to continue doing as much as we possibly can. At some point, Hashem will just have to take over completely. Now he's making it seem like we're doing something. In reality, he's doing everything. At some point, we're going to run out of options. He's just going to have to do everything because there's nothing else we can do. But the foundational reason of all of this stuff is that apparently they skipped last night's Mishnah, which is Aroyet Anulad, someone who considers the outcome of his action. Any Jew celebrates any of these non-Jewish holidays obviously has not read history because the overwhelming majority of them if not all of them are based on some type of paganism, some type of idol worship and usually throughout history those specific holidays one of the ways they would celebrate them was not just by putting little uh, you know, a, uh, lights on the tree they would put body parts on the tree they would put Jewish people on the tree. It was a holiday where they would use that holiday to kill Jews. That's just a reality. You can check history. I'm not making this up. So, again, the people today didn't kill them, but the point is that, at the very least, let's, be, you know, let's not celebrate the holiday. So today's Mishnah is, in essence, the opposite of last night with a few twists. We see that last night's Mishnah told us of a way to live the good life. How, what is the best direction to take in your life in order to be on a proper path? Meaning a path that has, that you'll feel fulfillment, a path that you'll have success, a path that you will overall feel that your life has some type of meaning and you'll succeed in it. Today, Rabban Yochanan is coming back to his students, and he's saying the opposite. Translation He said to them, meaning Rabban Yochanan said to his students, Go out and discern which is the evil path from which a man should distance himself. Rabbi Eliezer, which is referring to Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos, Rabbi Eliezer says, an evil eye. Rabbi Yoshua says, a wicked friend. 
Rabbi Yossi says, a wicked neighbor. Rabbi Shimon says, one who borrows and does not repay. One who borrows from a man is like one who borrows from the omnipresent. As it says, the wicked one borrows and does not pay, while the righteous one is gracious and gives. Psalm 37.21 Rabbi Lazal says, a wicked heart. He, meaning Rabbi Yohanan, said to them, I prefer the words of Elazal ben Arach to your words, for your words are included in his words. So as you'll notice from last night, whoever had a chance to watch last night's shiur, you'll see that in essence, almost everything is the opposite of yesterday. Yesterday, Rabban Yochanan asked the sages, go out there and tell us what is the best path to take in life. And Rabbi Eliezer said, the one major midah, the one major character trait that one can use as a foundation to build on is to have ayin tova, to have a good eye, to look at everything in a positive way. You see your friend just won the lotto, be happy for him. Don't be jealous. You see your friend got a new job, be happy for him. You see your friend got married, be happy for him. Have a good eye. Today, Rabbi Eliezer says the opposite. What's a bad way? A bad eye. So we'll understand what that means in a moment. Rabbi Yoshua said, have a, and be a chaver tov, be a good friend, and have a good friend. Why? Because having a good friend is what's not good friend is going to give you a ride to the airport. Because Uber can do that also for 25 bucks. Doesn't make him your friend. What is it? I'm a friend that's going to tell you the truth. He says, hey, listen, you know what? You're not being a good father. You know what? You're not being a good husband. You know what? You're not being an honest employee. You're not being a good boss. You're not being a good servant of Hashem. Driving on Shabbat, eating non-kosher, doing all these sins. You're not, you know, he's going to tell you the truth. The strength of your relationship with your friends is based on how easily you could criticize each other without being offended. If you have to walk on eggshells every time with your friends and you're like scared to tell them the truth, you're scared to tell them, listen, by the way, I saw that you yelled at all the employees about something they didn't even do, and you're scared to tell them about that, your friendship is really not that strong. If you're scared to tell your friend the truth, it's not really your friend, he's an acquaintance. The acquaintance. But everyone likes to call their, oh no, that's my best friend. Who, this guy? Yeah, I know him for 30 years, my best friend. Oh, so why don't you stop, stop driving on Shabbat? No, 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 I don't want to disturb him. It's not my business. What do you mean it's not your business? You said your best friend. You said it's your best friend, so at the very least, you should tell him, listen, don't, uh, don't drive on Shabbat because eventually that car is going to lead you to gain home. What kind of friend are you knowing that your friends are going to go to gain home? You're not going to tell them anything? You're not a friend, you're an enemy. Friends like you, who needs enemies? So that's the thing. So Rabbi Yoshua said, be a good friend and find a good friend. Be the one that tells people the truth and find someone that's willing to tell you the truth. That's why many of the sages would actually even pay. They're like their number two person or a good friend of theirs. They'll actually pay them to tell them the truth. Because just in case they were uncomfortable to tell them the truth because maybe they were a student of theirs 
or maybe they were just family friend or anything like that. He said, listen, now that I'm paying you, you have to do because or else you'll be judged not only for not telling me the truth, you'll be judged for stealing because I'm paying you. I'm paying you for a service. I'm paying you to tell me the truth. So now you're not telling me the truth. If I'm making a sin, if I'm doing something against Hashem, now you're also stealing. Wow. And no one wants to be a thief. So the BOC says, be a good neighbor. And have a good neighbor. Why a good neighbor? And a good neighbor is someone that's closer than even a friend. A friend is going to see you once in a while. A neighbor is going to see you pretty much on a regular basis because he lives next to you. So a neighbor is much more likely to influence you directly and indirectly. He could influence you directly where he could talk to you, just like the friend. But he could do it indirectly because he's so close to you, you'll see how he acts all the time. You'll see how he handles his kids when they're yelling and screaming. You'll see how he handles his wife when she's really upset at him. You'll see how he handles his life when somebody just ran into his car. You'll see all that stuff. So if you see that as soon as someone smashed into his car while he was parked, he's acting normal. He's like, oh, listen, Baruch Hashem, what can we do? Hashem wanted me to have this kapalat of a note. So be it. Is the other driver okay? He's okay. It's, it's an insurance company. He's going to pay for it. Everything's going to be fine. If, if another Jew sees that, he says, oh, okay, good. That's, that's a good Jew. To emulate. I want to be like him. So, live, double. <laughs> so, uh, so the thing is, though, is that if a Jew sees another Jew that you know is is going through suffering, but in essence is not crying over it, not losing hope or anything like that, then that's that's something to emulate. That's something you want to be like. On the other hand, if he sees him, you know, completely being careless about the other driver being you know bleeding from his face. And all he cares about is his brand new car being scratched. Who wants to be Jewish, Michlob? All all you care about is his car being scratched. The guy's bleeding from his eye. He had a baby in the car. You don't care about them? I had a guy, Miskin. Miskin, he's uh, actually... uh, has, Has a very bad character trait. He's a very nice guy. He's a very, very bad character trait when it comes to money. So attached to it, like he mama, she sees nothing. When money comes, everything else goes blank. He says, "Yeah, listen, one of my employees just called me, told me he's not uh, showing up to work because he got hurt." I'm like, "Oh, okay." What's the natural question you would ask him? Is he okay? What happened? So that's what I asked. It's like, oh, I don't care about him. Let him die for like it. Just uh, hopefully he doesn't sue me for uh, for disability. <laughs> oh, man, we have a lot to learn, my friend. We have a lot to learn. But you know what? The truth is, many, many bosses have the same mindset. Many, many bosses have the same mindset. It's not necessarily that they're bad people. Is that you play with numbers so much that you become numb to people. You become numb to people. I can tell you about myself. I can always help myself do tshuva by reminding myself of how I was. We're trying to do tshuva still to this day. I had one time a uh, employee, probably shouldn't even tell you guys this, but uh, if you're going to learn out of it, you'll see. We'll learn from it. I had an employee one time. And uh, we were in, you know, 
stock market, money, and uh, fast pace, 500 miles an hour. If you didn't do the job right, I didn't want to look at you even. Um, and it was, you know, if you were not the best, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't tolerate it. And your time off, your vacation, your personal life, all that stuff didn't really matter to me. All I cared about is being the best. And uh, and that's what I would tell my employees. If you're not going to be here, at least making $400,000 a year or more, you better, within two years of starting, you're better off choosing a new career. Go be a teacher, make $50,000 a year. It's not worth it. If you're not going to be a top guy where at the very least you'll make that much money, at least. I'm not talking about that. That shouldn't be your target. That should be like where you should be within a couple of years. If you're not there, pick a new career. It's not worth it. You have a much easier life being a teacher, being a bus driver. It's not worth the headache, the stress, and everything else. We were, you know, like, I don't know, athletes are top performers. They go through a lot of suffering to be top performers. The problem is when you're a top performer or you try to be a top performer, it's very easy to lose grasp of reality. So one time I had this employee, this secretary, and um, <clears throat> she... Uh, uh, comes to my office and says, listen, I have to leave. Uh, you know, I'm going to a uh, funeral. And I said, oh, I'm, you know, what happened? And uh, she said, they, uh, oh, no, my distant aunt that she pretty much never ever spoke to in her life died. And uh, I'm going to, you know, for respect, I'm going to give, I'm going to go to the funeral. So my response, instead of saying, I'm sorry, or, uh, you know, something, anything, or, okay, good luck, I don't know, say nothing. It was better off to say nothing. What did I say, the idiot that I am, said, you're anti, but why do I have to suffer? Meaning, I'm not going to have an assistant today because you're anti, that you never spoke to? Because I completely lost grasp of reality, thinking that, okay, she died, okay, so let's move on with life. Like, I didn't really value anything else. And again, didn't necessarily make me a evil person. I mean, a, uh, I was generous with people. I gave people stakah and all of those things. But the reality of it is that that's what we think makes us good. We think that if we give people stuff, that's what makes us good. And one of the chidushim that I learned recently is that, you know, if you look at the book of Daniel, when Daniel came to Nebuchadnezzar Rasha, who killed millions and millions and millions of Jews destroyed the Bet HaMikdash he asked him to translate his dream and he translated his dream and he told him eventually you know eventually Hashem is going to punish you for everything you're doing yes you're going to be the strongest leader ever until the Mashiach according to your dream but you also destroyed the Bet HaMikdash and Hashem is going to punish you but if you want to postpone the punishment give tzedakah Give tzedakah. It says, Your tzedakah will save you from death. Not that it will save you from death like you'll never die. Or that you'll never get punished. It'll postpone it. It'll postpone your death. If you decree to die early, this could postpone your death. Give you an opportunity to do tshuva. So sometimes you think you're good because you give tzedakah. Sometimes you think you're good because you bought your, your wife a present. Sometimes you think you're good because you cooked for your husband. But in reality, that's just material. The most valuable things cost nothing. 
Sometimes the, the Bek Neset doesn't really need your tzedakah. They need you to be chop for minyan. They need you to support the rabbi when he's having a tough day. The wife doesn't care about the car you bought. Her. Why don't you buy flowers? It's much cheaper. Every Shabbat. Right on Friday, bring her flowers, $9.99. Much more valuable than any car you could ever buy her. She could still drive the 1989 Buick, but with the 999 flowers, she'll be much happier. Your husband? Yes, it's great. You made him a nice meal. and But if you're crying over it for the next three days because your hands don't work anymore because of how much you slaved over the food, it's not worth it. Go buy, go $15, buy a kosher meal, it's finished. Just be normal. Don't kill yourself over making him food and complain about it on top of it too. <clears throat> he doesn't want to come home and say, oh yeah, I cooked for you, but the attitude is Tisha B'Av. <laughs> I'd rather I bought the food 15 minutes, I bought it, but I'm happy when you got home. So that's the thing. So that's when you lose grasp of reality, when you're so focused on certain things, it's, it could get really far, and you can get as far as I did, where I literally completely was, Hashem, forgive me, I was completely unconcerned about somebody just died. Now, I know it didn't really, this woman didn't actually matter to her. She didn't even know her. So it's not like she was crying or anything. It wasn't like obvious that this bothered her at all. But it bothered me later on when I started realizing, did I just really say that? You question yourself once in a while. But that's when you start realizing how disconnected you are from reality. So, when you have a chaver tov, listens to this, he's going to tell you, listen, buddy, should have at the least said, I'm sorry. Yeah. Or just don't say anything at all. Don't say what you just said. If you have a shachento, you'd see how he reacts when something like that happens. After that, last night's Mishnah said, Aroyet means that someone who sees the outcome of an action if I was able to see the outcome of my action, I would have realized that shortly later she would quit the job. Um, but the point is, is that it's a uh, anyone that is able to use foresight, they'll be much more successful in life, both in business, spiritually, and everything else. Um, and that's also one of the things we're failing at today, where we are so assimilated, so far from foundational Torah that we don't want what we have, we want what everyone else has. Not realizing that the outcome of that is more assimilation, more secularization, and more bad. If you look at history, the only times Am Yisrael was doing good is when we were close to Hashem. Every time we went against them, we lost. Anytime you pick, whether it's during the desert, or it's during the Bet Mikdash, or it's during the second Bet Mikdash, or throughout the last couple of thousand years. But unfortunately, for us to get close to Hashem, Hashem had to punish us first. So, events like this, with what's happening with Boko Raton, this is the type of stuff that happens. Right before Hashem says, okay, you crossed the line. When the Rasha Mendelssohn, a few hundred years ago, 
decided to publicly announce that everyone should be a Jew at home and a person outside. And we should start sending our kids to secular universities. <laughs> Instead of sending them to yeshivas and kollels and bet midrash, we should send them to universities to be like the goyim. Now he thought, innocently, that this is the right way to be. We're going to be like the goyim, we're going to have peace. They're not going to see us as so different from them anymore. Our kids will be smarter, they'll have more career choices. We'll go to university of here and university of there. And the kid's going to be a doctor, and another one's going to be a lawyer, and another one's going to be an accountant, and another one's going to be a sports agent, and a PR, and it's going to be good. What happened? All of his kids converted to Christianity. Ten kids, every single one of them converted to Christianity. And on top of it, the reform movement began. From what? From someone just being blind to an outcome of their actions. By wanting to be like the Goim momentarily. One lifetime. One generation. We're not talking about like this happened over 500 generations and slowly but surely we died. No, this is one decision. One guy said something, everyone listened, and lo and behold, we have Jews giving bar mitzvahs to dogs. We have Jews that say, you know what? Male and male, they could be husband and wife, even though it's against the Torah. Woman and woman, they could be husband and wife, even though it's against the Torah. Driving on Shabbat, yeah, we should all do it because even though it's against the Torah, it's more convenient. And you start changing the Torah and eventually it becomes a completely different religion. What's happening here at Boca Raton, people don't understand, this is the same thing. This is no different. This is pretty much saying there's no Jewish motivational speaker on earth that we can find apparently. We have to bring someone that's not only that's not Jewish, but on top of it, he's an idol worshiper missionary. And we think that somehow this is going to be good for us. And the biggest problem of it all is that almost every single person that I've spoken to, pretty much every single person I've spoken to actually, except obviously the BRS management, the synagogue's management, with the exception of them, Every single person I've spoken to, big rabbi, small rabbi, regular person, religious, not religious, secular, Jewish, not Jewish, everyone agrees is a bad idea. Everyone agrees is a really bad idea. Oh, except there was a couple of missionaries who said, why, what's the big deal? Oh, yeah, sure. A couple of missionaries contacted me said, what's the big deal that a missionary is going to come to you? Why are you guys so scared of what we're going to say? He said, Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. But everyone agrees it's a bad idea. But very, very few want to speak out. Very, very few want to disturb their convenient life and say, hey, this is a really bad decision. Now, Hashem, there's enough that are speaking out and causing a chaos over the last few weeks. But it's not enough. And we go to some big rabbis. And every single big rabbi we've spoken to, every single one of them, I agree with you 100%. It didn't take any convincing. I said, listen, a guy comes, this is this, this is, this is, you show him, this is what it is. You're not telling the story. This is the proof. This is what it says. This is a video. This is what he says about himself. 
He calls himself a missionary. He trains other missionaries. He's an idol worshiper. Not, I didn't make this up. This is not like a, 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 a some type of like a conspiracy theory. It's fact. Huh? He has a Wikipedia profile that says he sold more books about Christianity than anyone else except the New Testament. How much more proof do you want? So he told me, this is who they're bringing to a shul. He says, yeah, it's a reform shul though, right? Everyone said this. That was initially the response for a lot of people. Said, no, no, no. This is a orthodox shul, modern orthodox shul. And everyone's jaw dropped. And I agree with you. This shouldn't happen and this and that. But no one wants to speak out. Everyone wants to do something. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll try to do something. I'll make a phone call. I'll send an email. I'm like, yeah, but why don't you speak out? No one wants bad press. And it's been very, that's been the toughest battle for me. Toughest battle because in the public's eye, it almost seems like you're fighting alone. You're like the only crazy person fighting. Even though there's plenty of people supporting it and saying, Chazaku Baruch, and great idea, and yeah, you should do this, but you feel like you're like alone. You're like the only one speaking about it. Until Rabbi Mizrahi jumped in, and a couple of other people jumped in publicly. But in reality, it's like very, very difficult. But, Baruch Hashem, the best news that I have to offer today is that, as I said yesterday, right now we're in the process of getting a letter from Gdolei Adol. We're finally taking an initiative, and they're signing a letter saying this is 100% Asul. It's Asul. It's not allowed to have this event. It's not allowed to attend this event. It's not allowed to support this event. It's not allowed to do anything relating to this event in any way, shape, or form that's positive. Um, and this is not from like a local rabbi that just doesn't like Goldberg or Shabtai or Moscowitz. This is Gdoleado. And we've gotten some signatures, Baruch Hashem, already from some big ones, but we'll publicize this letter when necessary. Hopefully, hopefully I pray to Hashem really, really hard. Hopefully this is enough. Honestly, if it was a month ago, I would have told you this should have been enough. One Gdoleado, one big giant rabbi would have been enough. To say, okay, this is a bad idea. You, want, you don't want to listen to me because I'm a nobody? Fine. But one big giant Av Bedin, Gdoladol, says it's not good. You should listen to him. So a month ago, I would have said to you, yeah, that would be enough. Problem is, we did that already. We got two Av Bedins to sign a letter. We had several other ones make phone calls. Nothing has been enough. So now we have to literally go to the biggest. And it's been a mission. And it's been a mission. But... You do what you can, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping this is enough. At the very least, this is enough for the Kehila to see that the leadership is wrong, terribly. And this is also enough to convince all six million Jews that live in America and any English-speaking Jew to realize under no condition does any real rabbi ever recommend to bring a missionary to a shul? So if they choose to continue and go against the Gdolador also, there's not much more you can do. But at that very moment, they'll be cutting themselves and becoming a new religion. Because no one, no one that's serious about God or Hashem or Torah or anything is ever going to take any member of that shul serious again, or their rabbis knowing that they went against Gdolador. So I'm hoping that everyone sees the Nolad, sees the outcome of if they go with it anyway, after getting signatures from the Gdolador, and that's still not enough, 
hopefully that's enough. Everyone realizes, okay, it's a mistake. It wasn't a bad idea. Even if we don't see that it's a bad idea, enough people think it is a bad idea. Let's stop. Let's move on. That's it. Listen, plenty of people made mistakes, and I just told you a very embarrassing mistake of my own. You made a mistake. That's it. You move on. The greater you are, you know, the more mistakes you're going to make on the way there. There's no such thing as a uh, clear coast to uh, the promised land. No such thing. So, the last part of last night's Mishnah was that Rabbi Elazar said, left of having a good heart, having a good heart, according to Rabban Yochanan, was in essence encompassing all of the character traits that were mentioned by the other sages having a good heart will give you the ability to have a good eye will give you the ability to be a good friend will give you the ability to be a good neighbor will give you even the ability to see the outcome of certain things because you care so today they're saying the opposite today and to some extent where Rabbi Eliezer says an evil eye that's one of the things that you have to distance yourself from why is it that Rabbi Eliezer says that the one thing, the one thing that can literally destroy your life, he's not just saying this is just something bad. It's a million and a half things you can mention that are bad. Anger is bad. This cheap, being cheap is bad. This is, a lot of things are bad. But here they're saying, not only not do it. You see, distance yourself from it. Be as far as you can from it. Just like the Gemara says about Abu Dazarah, you're not even allowed to be within six feet of Abu Dazara. You're not even allowed to be within six feet of idol worship. What do you say, Abu Sarah? Abu Dazara. A V O D A H. And then Zara, Z A R A H. That's idol worship. So, Abu Dazara is so dangerous, you can't even be close to it. The sages one time had an option. I'm in. There was two roads. One road would take them across the path of a door to a church. They wouldn't go into the church, but they would pass it. They would pass next to it. The other path, making a left, would take them and they would cross the opening of a brothel, prostitution house. So one of the sages said, listen, let's just go next to the... Uh, house of idol worship because the sages already prayed for idol worship to not be a uh, you know something that's our desire at least we won't be caught by any of these prostitutes and make a huge sin wasting seed being with a uh, immodest woman a prostitute and so on endless amount of sins so it's logical you just pass by the church don't pay attention don't look that there's a cross over there just pass go get to where you need to be sage said no it's better to go and take the chance of passing by the prostitution house instead of passing by the church. <laughs> That's how bad idol worship is. That's how far you have to distance yourself from it. So now the Be'er bin Okunas is telling us this is our things you have to distance yourself from. These are certain character traits that you not only can't do, it's not just about not doing it. Of course you don't have to do it. You don't need Chazal to tell you not to do it. He's saying this is something you have to stay as far away 
is possible from? Because if you have it, it will destroy your life. What does he choose? Bad eye. Bad eye, evil eye. Why evil eye? It's the opposite of what he said before. Having a good eye will give you a good foundation for a good life. He says the opposite, a bad eye, an evil eye, will make your life miserable. We covered this a little bit last night. One of the foundational things that cause 99% of death, according to Chazal, is evil eye. 99% of people die from evil eye, 1% just run out of time. You know, they lived 120 years, they lived, you know, they, you know the sin of the, uh, of the um, tree of knowledge, they die because of that, eventually everybody has to die. But in reality, 99% of people die prematurely because of evil eye. Someone said, oh, what a beautiful new car he has. He's complimenting him. In reality, he doesn't want to compliment him. But he says, oh, what a beautiful car he has. This guy gets into the accident. Reminds me of a joke. It's not really, it's kind of funny, but it's not. But I, I, I get very happy about jokes because I don't remember jokes at all, ever. Tell us, tell us. I heard, <laughs> I heard this joke. It's two guys had evil eye. Both of them were like, everyone knew these, this one is Satan, the other one is Malachamavit. With their evil eye. So, one guy says, oh, wow, look at that new bridge. Immediately, the bridge collapsed. The other one says, wow, what an amazing eye you have. Meaning, amazing evil eye has. Poof, his eye blew up. Strange humor, Israeli humor, but nonetheless, at least it's a joke. I had it to the, uh, I had it to the five list of five jokes that I have. I think. Uh, but anyway, evil eye. Why is evil eye so bad? Why is evil eye so bad? Because evil eye is going to make you miserable. Evil eye is going to make you constantly spend time looking at other people's Facebook profiles, thinking they're living a life that you want. If you ever noticed, people that spend any time on Facebook and on social media and they take pictures of their sandwiches and the restaurant and they went to the vacation and the kid that's playing with the toy and he looks cute and the cop that saved five ducks in the middle of the highway. You know, everybody publicizes like the nicest parts of their life. So everyone looks at their Facebook profiles like, wow, what a lucky guy. What a lucky guy. He has a wife. He has kids. They don't show you the guy just got arrested for drunk driving. They don't show you that picture on Facebook. (laughs) They don't show you the picture that his wife just threw a pan at him because he didn't show up for two days. They don't show you that picture. They don't show you that he doesn't know how he's going to pay his bills because he just saw that his bank account has deficit balance. They don't show you that picture. They show you life is grand. Life is grand, and if anyone ever sends like a puts like a bad picture, like a woman says, "Oh, I'm so depressed," everyone unfriends her. No one wants to be friends with a, with a miserable person. No. Or people try to make themselves feel good and say, "Oh, I'm sorry," and then pretty much unfriend her after that. Like, don't pay attention, because you just want to see like fake life. So first and foremost, when you have a bad eye, number one, you're always going to look at other people's life, thinking that their life is better than yours. In reality, it's all fake. Everyone has their trials, their tribulations, their difficulties, their ups, their downs. And looking at other people's life is definitely not going to make your life any better. It's not. 
In fact, it's guaranteed to make your life worse. Because what they're showing you is not reality. So people that watch shows where people are, you know, driving fancy cars and living in fancy houses and the wife is always beautiful and the husband is always handsome and the kids are always top students and they don't even have to try. You know, apparently no kid in history has ever studied on television. You know, they always know everything and they're always honor roll and they're always rich and they don't, no one has any problems ever except the boyfriend problem or a girlfriend problem once in a while that they cry over for five minutes. Like, everyone's life is so grand. Everyone that watches these shows is guaranteed to have a miserable life because what you're watching is a warped version of reality. It's not real. It's just not real. So, but by constantly watching it, you're going to make yourself believe that it's possible. It's possible for everything to be perfect. And this is the reason why people spend pretty much their entire year savings, they work the entire year like dogs, night and day, no family, no kids, no Torah, no life, no nothing, for one vacation to Cancun or Australia or China or wherever they're going to go with the family. With the family. What's the best part of the trip? Coming home. <laughs> the best part of the trip is coming home. Yeah, okay, it was fun to go on the slip and slide and there was water splashing. Yeah, but they didn't show you the picture of how much of a nightmare it was to get to the park and stand online for three hours. Yeah. It's great to see Mickey Mouse with the kids like six years later. Oh, look at little Stephanie with, uh, with Mickey Mouse. But they don't tell you that, you know, she uh, broke her finger five minutes later. You know, because she slipped and fell. They don't show you that part of the picture. It's not real. It's like a fake part of life. But all you're doing, you're doing it for the pictures. Why? Because you need to put something on Facebook. And you need the world to think that you have a great life. So on one end, you're living a fake life because you're looking at everybody else's life. Two... You're obviously not managing your life in an appropriate way. Your entire work and life is just for this one big trip or two big trips a year, which are never going to be enough. You're pretty much your entire year working for one week. And three, the worst part of all, when you show everyone only good, you're opening double wide doors for evil eye. Everyone's going to look at you. And say, oh, look how lucky he is. He has a brand new car, a brand new this, and a brand new that, and a brand new this. And Hashem, Hashem, how much disaster that brings into your life. This is why, in general, the most important thing anyone needs to understand in life is to be private. Don't spread your business to the world. Whether you're successful or not successful, be low-key. Be low-key. You made, you made money, keep it to yourself. You don't have to tell the world you made money. You know, I'm not saying that you're not a, uh, allowed to enjoy your money, you can build a house and all of that stuff, but don't get to a point where, you know, a, uh, there's TV shows calling you, asking you uh, how much money you spent on the house. Be modest. You don't need to have a $300,000 car in a parking lot. It could be $50,000 and still nice. Modesty is very, very important. But also... Getting, if you're going to have kids, 
making them think that a hundred fifty thousand dollar car is supposed to be a, a you know a, a car for an eighteen year old. That's a warped version of reality. The kid's going to grow up to be a loser because unless he is going to somehow achieve his own success, he's going to be very, very miserable because no one wants to live in, a, in their father or mother's shadow. So again, this, this, this warped version of reality breeds more and more negativity, more and more bad things, and this is why we have some of the highest suicide rates mm-hmm. you would think would come from the poor. But if you actually look at the suicide rate in America, it's approximately 4%. 4% of Americans commit suicide. Interestingly enough, the suicide rate in third world countries is not even close. It's like 95% less. You would think the poor would be much more likely to commit suicide. But it's the opposite. Suicide is something only the rich do. For the most part. Because we're constantly looking at everybody else's life, and we realize that what we have is never enough. It'll never will be enough. Even if you're on Forbes 500 list, you're always going to look at who's 499. And if you're 499, who's 498? And if you're number three, who's number two? You're never going to be happy with what you have. So... In essence, having this evil eye works both ways. One is looking at things in a negative way. Two, not being happy with what you have. And three, which is one of the worst of all, is that you're ended up you're showing people a fake reality of your own life which welcomes the evil eye. Next thing after that is Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Yoshua says, Chavera. Worst thing that could serve as your the foundation of your character traits is to be a bad friend. To be a bad friend. Now we, heard, we already talked about how being a good friend means not to give somebody a ride to the airport, not to give somebody a uh, 20 bucks loan. That's all nice. It's fine. And, you know, maybe you'll get a mitzvah for it. But in reality... That does not make you a good friend. Makes you a good friend, according to Chazal, is telling people the truth. Telling your friends, listen, I understand that you learn Torah, but your understanding is wrong. Why? Because you're using your own logic to understand it, and your logic may sound logical, but it's against what the sages said. Rashi says the opposite of what you said. Tosfut says the opposite of what you said. And there's no way that you're going to be right and the sage is wrong. Never will happen. Never. You think that Shabbat is no longer relevant to today? That's not possible because that would make the Torah something temporary. Which is the opposite of what the Torah says about itself. Hashem says Torah is eternal. Le'olam. Whatever rules they have, all of them are applicable until today. Every single rule, every single rule in the Torah, 613 mitzvot, are all applicable to today. So the next question should be, wait a minute, but there are rules out of the 613 mitzvot, there are many of them that are for the Bet Mikdash. We don't have a Bet Mikdash. So how could it be applicable 
And we can't do it. We don't have a Bet HaMikdash. So just because we don't have a Bet HaMikdash doesn't mean it's not applicable. It just means that we can't do it. We're considered Anusim. Mm-hmm. Oh. We're Anus. We have no choice. We don't have a choice to do. If it was, if the Bet HaMikdash was here, we would be obligated to do everything that they did in the first place. The Kolbanot, the Kohanim, the Kodesh Kodeshim, everything. The offerings, everything that they were doing, we'd be obligated to immediately do it right away. There's actually a school of, for Kohanim in Israel that they started some years ago where they're actually training people that are Kohanim to already be ready as soon as the Bet HaMikdash is open that they're going to know what to do. The Kohanim is not like just your regular uh, religious people. They have special, different, actual jobs, physical jobs they have to do in the Bet HaMikdash. So we can't just like say, oh Hashem, send us the Mashiach, send us the Bet HaMikdash, and as soon as it shows up, there's no one knows what to do. We're already getting training now. Wow. So now, telling somebody that you see doing something wrong, the truth is what makes you a good friend. Now, last night, we talked about a disease called Munchausen. Munchausen is a disease, it's a syndrome that is unfortunate, it's, a, it's in essence a um, mental disorder where someone believes that they're sick, even though they're not sick. And then there's something called Munchausen, uh, Munchausen uh, proxy, which is that they believe that someone else is sick. And usually this happens with like a mother or a father and their son. So the mom thinks and makes the kid believe that the kid is sick. But not sick like once and he got a cold and then he takes a, you know, NyQuil and he's finished. No, sick forever. Like always, like sick forever. So there's actually an article that I read um, where this one particular very, very odd case, because usually they found out about these cases, you know, earlier, um, but there was one case where the mom made the world, including the kid uh, herself, believe that she was sick for 23 years. 23 years. And the only reason the world found out that the kid was not sick was because the mom died. That's it. It's the only reason. And everyone thought that the kid was a paraplegic, but in reality she was perfectly able to walk. Everyone thought she had all types of bone issues. No bone issues at all. Everyone thought that she had hearing problems. No hearing problems at all. Like she, this mom had a mental disorder where she believed that the kid was sick and she in essence with all the medicine and all the treatment that she would in essence convince the doctors to give the kid, she made the kid sick. But the kid wasn't really sick. And eventually when the kid stopped taking, when now became an adult, stopped taking the medicine, little by little she got back to normal and she lived a uh, normal life. At least as normal as you can be when under the circumstance. So in today's world, we have the same disease in Judaism. We actually have the same disease everywhere. It's called political correctness. When you're politically correct, why are you politically correct? Because you think that everyone is sick. You think that no one else can handle the truth. So you start removing certain words from 
the English or Hebrew or any other language because they're no longer appropriate. So, for example, one of the clips we cut out of uh, last week's lecture, uh, you know, I was very passionate and I was talking about something and long story short, I was talking about this whole idol-worshipping situation that's going on with the bringing a missionary. And uh, at some point I used the word retarded. Now, retarded can mean several different things. It can mean that you're late. It can mean that obviously someone has a mental deficiency. It could just mean that you're behind. But that entire clip was like 10 minutes. 10 minutes. 11 minutes. There's a lot of words in 10 or 11 minutes. A lot. We actually did a... uh, Somebody wants to write a book about my life story. And a... um, they, I told them I, you know, I want to write my own book one day, but it's just because I, I like writing, but it just takes a lot of time. So he said, "Well, well, if we just write the text to your personal story that you said in the lecture, we'll start that as a foundation. See, maybe it's I don't know, maybe it's going to be it'll help you start it and everything." So I said, "Okay, fine, no problem. Go ahead and do it." And to both of our surprise, you know, the lecture was two and a half hours. You would think, okay, two and a half hours, I don't know, you spoke 5,000 words, 10,000 words maybe. I think it was 40,000 words or something insane like that, which was like 35% of a book in one lecture. It was amazing. So, needless to say, 11 minutes is a lot. You could say a lot of words in 11 minutes. Especially if you have a little bit of a New Yorker and you're an Israeli at the same time, you speak even faster. <laughs> so, out of this entire 10 minutes, this one guy that's looking for me, you know, doesn't like me anyway, he's on the BRS team. Uh, he says, Oh, you know, you use very foul language, very offensive language. <laughs> and I said, what's, what, what, what's, what's offensive? Oh, you know, you use the word retard. Now, anyone that listens to what I'm saying sees that, first of all, I'm not using it to make fun of anyone that's mentally deficient, shalom, or anything like that. But, we're so politically correct, and we're looking, we're looking, oh no, you're using different grammar, different words, different this. Why? Because we have been trained to think that everyone is incapable, everyone is not able, everyone is just deficient, everyone's sick. So you can't use real language with them. You can't talk to them straight up. You have to like go through the corner, go behind. You know, don't say to them, send them a text. Oh no, text is too abrupt. Send them an email. No, but make sure, don't use caps. Like if I, you know, once in a while you forget the cap button on and you start typing. And by the time you realize that everything is caps, you already typed the paragraph. You don't want to retype the whole thing. You just press send. So in this world, like, why are you yelling at me? Who's yelling at Just use caps, buddy. Relax. I'm not yelling at you. But that's the mentality we have. And it's all bad training. And the same thing as infested Judaism, where for whatever reason or another, somehow, which is the mitzvah of rebuking your brother rebuking your sister, rebuking your nation for doing something that's against God. In essence, doing something against themselves. They're drinking poison. You're telling them, hey, 
don't drink poison. You're driving on Shabbat. Don't drive on Shabbat. Why? Because then when you show up to Olam Abba, it's going to be a nuclear war site. You're not going to have a good Olam Abba. It's going to be a really, really bad one. Hashem's going to punish you. You're going to lose Panasai in this world. You're going to lose life in this world. There's endless amount of punishments that you get in this world and the next. If I just read you guys 25 things of what happens to a Mechalel Shabbat one time, you'd be scared to get out of the house. I have a book that's 80 pages of different verses. 80 pages of these different verses. If you just read the first 25, of, it's all list of punishments of what happens to a Mechalel Shabbat. If you just read the first 25, you'd be scared to get out of the house. Forget about driving on Shabbat. Be scared to move. Of all the things that happens to a Mechalel Shabbat. So when he tells him, hey listen, stop driving on Shabbat. Stop uh, playing with your phone on Shabbat. Stop watching TV on Shabbat. Stop going against Hashem. And listen, you tell the guy, hey, that button, that's a nuclear weapon. And it's not going there, it's going to you. You're blowing yourself up. That's what Ochach Tochiach is. That's what rebuking your brother is. It means that you're going to give him constructive criticism to help him. Which is allowed, of course. Which is not all. it's a mitzvah. It's an obligation. Yeah. But for whatever reason or another, we've become so politically correct and so poisoned from these rabbis that have Munchausen proxy. They believe that all of us are sick and we can't handle it. And therefore, we're not allowed to rebuke each other. And this is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the major reasons of why people can live a life where they go to Beknesset for 25 years and still drive on Shabbat. Hmm. 25 years, they're driving to Beknesset. 25 years, they're still on Mechalel Shabbat. 25 years, they're still eating non-kosher. They eat kosher at home, so they think they're okay. But outside the house, no, no kosher. But they think it's okay. As long as my house is kosher, it's great. As long as my sukkah is the biggest on the block, I'm a tzaddik. As long as I donate money to the Beknesset and you put my name on some you know, list to tell the world that I donated $5,000 or $10,000 or $100,000 or a million dollars, I feel great. Yeah, but what about the fact that you're considered an enemy of Hashem because of your behavior? Oh, no, no, don't tell him that. He can't handle that. He's in a weak generation. So, Ochech Tochech became a curse. And one of the things that is the biggest and most misleading part of this entire equation is the false understanding of what we have today about Hasidut. People think that Hasidut means people that are always happy, and only talk about positive things. So there's two, there's a few different types of chasidut, but the two most popular ones today are Chabad and Breslev. Obviously there are others, also great, also big, and so on. But the ones that are most popular, at least amongst the secular world, are Chabad and Breslev. And people see different versions of them. They see the Chabadniks, driving during the holidays with a truck and a big sign on the back, on the back of the picture of the Rebbe from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Some even write Mashiach on it, some say king, some say this, some say that, which is a problem of its own. But they're celebrating, they invite everyone over for every Shabbat, eat chulent, eat this, eat that, every Hanukkah party is a blast, every Purim is even a bigger blast. Similar with Breslev, you have some people that, you know, 
drive around the countries, especially in Israel, in vans with you know club music on, break dancing in the middle of the street. In essence, telling people that this is happiness. One of the Gdolado calls those uh, those version the real a real breast liver calls those breast livers the uh, lost tribes of India that are somehow found themselves in in, in Israel. Isn't you know? Isn't, this is not breast lift, going around in vans and break dancing, learning Torah. That's breast lift. working on your breed, working on your mitzvot, working on your, you know, closeness to Hashem. That's that's the Hasidut. But for whatever reason or another, there's enough misunderstanding where when you start telling people, "Hey, listen, you have to change. You have to improve." Like, no, no, no. That's not the type of teaching that I'm looking for. I'm looking for teaching that's always positive. So I'm going to go to Chabad. I'm going to go to Bresla because they're always positive. Rabbi Nachman said, be happy. Lubavitcher Rabbi says, be happy. So I'm going to go there because they always talk about happiness. If anyone ever actually spent any time whatsoever reading their books, it's not quite that. It's not quite that. There's a couple of very interesting chidushim. So, first one, we mentioned last night, but this is in Yalzu Hasidim by the Pele Yoetz, Rabbi Eliezer Papo. And he says this, this is a Yalzu Hasidim, it's a, it's a Musar book, but for Hasidim, in essence. He says, anyone who sees his friend making a sin, and doesn't say anything, doesn't warn him at all, like he's supposed to, according to the mitzvah of tochachah, the mitzvah of rebuking, it is the same thing as if he murdered him. He's not talking about he saw Mechalel Shabbat driving, you know, no, no, he's talking about any sin. Any sin. You see one of your friends, listen, speak to the rabbi inappropriately. Speak to, uh, you know, any, you know, doing something inappropriate, doing something that's a sin. And he says, hey, listen, by the way, you, you know, you really shouldn't have said that. Or you shouldn't have done that. He doesn't do it. He says, Gabriel has a papo, which is to pele your way. It's one of the giants. He says, you're a murderer. You're a murderer. Didn't say, oh, be happy, be happy. He didn't say that in this Hasidic book. Okay. But this is, say, oh, yeah, but Gabriel has a papo. He's not breastlift. He's not Chabad. Okay, so let's go. Let's continue. <laughs> In Lekute Ma'aran, Chelek Aleph, Perek Nun Vav, Ot Gimel, of the Rabbi Nachman from Breslev. So this is, in essence, the foundation of Breslev. It talks about Sharabrut Mekaberet et Baalea, Aval Im Mochiach et Achotim Nitzal Mizeh. So it talks about how the Rabbanut, the rabbis, being a rabbi, in essence, 
the position of being a rabbi, he's burying himself by being a rabbi. This job, the ultimate outcome of his job, he's in essence killing himself doing it. Why? Because he doesn't rebuke. But if he rebukes the sinners, he saved himself at least. Wow, that's heavy. At least he saved himself. The rabbi is talking, not talking about the sinners only. He's talking about the rabbi himself. He goes, you want to be a rabbi? Okay, I was like, well, be a rabbi. But just make sure you realize, if you don't rebuke your people, you're taking on all of their sins and you're burying yourself. If at least he warns them and rebukes them, at least he does his part. At least he does his job. He does, he fulfilled the job. You told him don't be Mechal Shabbat. You told him don't eat Taref. You told him don't go with Eshet Ish. You told him don't do all these things. You warned him what's going to happen. You told him it's going to end then. You told him it's going home. You told him, you did your part. You did your part. What happens when you did your part? You saved your soul. Not that you say, you told him. He didn't say, by you telling him you saved his soul. No, because maybe he's not going to listen to you. But you saved yours. But at least you saved yours. Why? Because if you didn't, you take on a sin. He goes with a married woman. In Shemaim, you're going with a married woman. He's a Mechal Shabbat. In Shemaim, you're a Mechal Shabbat. This is to the rabbi. This is to the rabbi. And it uses the verse in Sefer Yechezkel, And you warned the rasha, warned the wicked person, and he did not do tshuva. Him, he's going to die because of his sin. He's going to die being a sinner. But you at least saved your soul. The source, Sefer Yechezkel, Ezekiel, chapter 3. Where is that? Ezekiel, chapter 3. And the sword, this is all written in Likutei Ma'aran, Rabbi Nachman from Breslev. Likutei Ma'aran, chapter Aleph, or chapter 1, section uh, Nun Vav, which is uh, 56, paragraph uh, 3. Aval, eno mozir umochiach otam, aze ha'onesh alav. But if he doesn't warn and re- or rebuke them, the entire sin is on him. Kmo shekatuv sham v'alken arabanut mekaberet et ba'alea. He says, just like it's written, the rabbanut, the the, uh, the being the, having the rabbinical position, buries its owners, buries the rabbis. Why? Because they didn't rebuke. This is Rabbi Nachman from Breslev. Wow. He didn't talk about. Hey, go, don't rebuke, don't... Where does it say that? Which part of the book does it say that? And it continues. You continue reading his, his work. It doesn't say anything about this, say, so stuff not, that people think. It's not happy-go-happy. No, not exactly. Not exactly. Now, 
One of the other things that we have a confusion about is that we think that as long as we do like this one thing, everything's okay. But if you look at the Vilna Gaon, he says that if you lived in this world and you didn't fix your midot, would you live for? Meaning there's no way that you have fulfilled your mission in life without correcting your bad traits. No way. So what you waste your what you lived eighty years, hundred years, hundred twenty years, you still died an angry person, you still died a cheap person, you still died uh, a liar. What'd you live for? You wasted your life. That's the Vilna Gaon. Rabbi Nachman from Breslev doesn't say anything different. But he says something very, very relevant to today. You have many people that do these one-off things where they won't really be religious the whole year, but they'll definitely come to Beknesset and pray non-stop on Yom Kippur. And sometimes they're even going to wear white because they heard that it's a zgula for something. It's always a full house on Yom Kippur. Right. So now, you have some people say, listen, I'm not necessarily going to actually read all these books, but what I'll do is I'll fast. I'll fast once a year extra, twice a year, three times a year, once a month even. I'll go to a mikveh. Some people want to go to a mikveh a few times a week, every day, whatever. So they'll do one-off items. But the foundational mitzvah of learning and fulfilling the Torah, not so much. So Rabbi Nachman from Breslev says this, Likutei Ma'aran, Chelek Aleph, Perek Yud, Ot Dalet. It's a um, first part, uh, chapter 10, I guess paragraph 4. And he says this, Shotam Shemitgaim al Atzomot Shetzamim Velo Shamru Etavatam Domim Lesak Im Chorim. Lo Shabru Velo Shabru Etavatam Domim Lesak Im Chorim. Rabbi Nachman from Breslov says this. There are some people that are proud of themselves because they fast an extra one, two, three, four, five, or ten times a month. They fast. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can't talk today. Why, why can't you talk? Oh, no, I'm fasting today. <laughs> right. well, it's not Tisha B'Av. No, no, it's not Yom Kippur. No, no, it's not Tzom Gedalia. No, no, I'm fasting because I'm uh, for my breed, for my this, for my that. Okay, why don't you just learn Torah like a normal person? What do you need to fast for? Somebody does Hashem add me to what for you only? What are you fasting for? Now, if you're already at a high level, like for example, I have a friend, Rabbi Raphael. He, mamash tzaddik. Him, whatever he does, to me, in my opinion, he's amazing. Tzaddik. He's mamash a very, very serious breast lover. Very serious person. Very serious breast lover. Talmud Chacham. Honest. Amazing. Very zealous. Serious person. In my opinion, the best breast lover I've ever met. In my, you know, I've never met that many, but he's... But then you have some people that are like, not only new to Breslev, they're new to religion, Bechlal. They're new to Judaism. They just did Tshuva a few months ago, six months ago, a year ago. They're brand new. 
They barely even know, you know, what, how to read a Dav Gemara. They started. And already they're starting to take on fasts. Already they're wearing white on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. Already they have like this whole like outside exterior all worked up. You, if you look at them from the outside and you don't know what you're doing either, you think this guy was born with a beard. <laughs> he was already born with a binachman bracelet already in his hand. Wow. He, took the, he took the book from inside the uterus. <laughs> he was still already reading. <laughs> Every one of us was in a uterus. He was in a mikveh. Wow. You think this guy's wow? This guy was a hair. Eh? This guy's amazing. He's like, hey, you just did chuba. Why are you fasting? Uh, why are you fasting today? Why are you fasting this month? Bechlal, no fast. No, no, I'm fasting. I'm working on myself. Working yourself. Why don't you work yourself and uh, work on your midot? You don't need to fast to work on your midot. Why don't you work on yourself and like I don't know, spend the whole day reading Gemara? Why don't you do that? Because fasting is much easier. It's one day. Working on your midot is every day. Learning Torah is every day. Being holy is every day. Fasting, it's one day. Okay, so you don't eat. Big deal. Big deal. You didn't eat. You didn't drink. Oh. In reality, most serious, serious people don't eat that much to begin with. You don't have time. You're busy. But people think, no, no, I'm going to fast today, I'm going to wear white today, I'm going to extend my beard, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Everything exterior, well, the interior is empty. So Rabbi Nachman already from hundreds of years ago already told us there's some people that are proud of themselves. They're pridefully proud of their tzomot, of their fasts. The fast that they're doing, the fast that they're adding to the view that we have to do every day. But they still didn't break their bad habits. They still didn't break. They're doing fasts that are extra, above and beyond. But they still didn't even break and fix one of their midot. What are they like? He says, they're exactly the same as a sack that's full, but has holes in it. You're filling it up with gold coins, because you think it's gold coins, but by the time you get to the destination, you arrive with an empty sack. Your fast, theoretically, is good. Theoretically, is good. But if there's no Torah to supplement it, it's worthless. You just didn't eat. You just didn't eat. Fasting and not eating is two different things. The point of the fast is to make you holy. But to be holy, you don't have to fast. So again, you see, when you actually read these holy sages' work, it's so far from the reality that you would think, like, the, the, the today's and there's two different things. Like, so... The one question I have is like anyone that wants to call themselves a chatzid. I had one guy tell me, I said, listen, why don't you come to the shiurim? No, no. I'm uh, learning about chassidut. And I tell him, yeah, we, we learn Musar. There's a Musar series we started a few months ago. Because no, 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 I want to learn about chassidut. And I'm thinking to myself, what do you think chassidut is? Like what version of reality do you have? What do you think chassidut is? It's doing above and beyond. 
first you have to be an expert in the basics. The basics is Musar, meaning that by the time you are going to be learning Chassidut, that means you've excelled in all of your Midot. You still have Emunah problems. Five minutes into the conversation, you're already telling me, oh, I'm not really sure I'm going to make it this month. You ate yesterday? You ate today? What are you worried about tomorrow for? Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkono says in the Gemara, anyone that ate today and is worried about tomorrow has no emunah. If Hashem worried about you today, why is He not going to worry about you tomorrow? You already ate today. What are you worried about tomorrow? So everyone wants to be a Hasid because that's like, you know, it's like Nike, it's like a brand. But in reality, if you actually read the work of the real Hasidim, it's not quite what we're being taught. So that's another thing that a good friend and a good neighbor is going to tell you. Rabbi Yoshua says a bad friend and a bad neighbor will do the opposite. Rabbi Yoshua says being a bad friend, I'm not going to rebuke. I'm going to see my friend violating Shabbat. No, no, I don't want to disturb him. I don't want to... Tell him, he's going to learn on his own. What do you mean learn on his own? 20 years he's going to synagogue, he still hasn't learned. 20 years he's using you as the excuse of why he hasn't learned. He says, look, my friend is a rabbi. He never told me once I don't have to, uh, I have to keep Shabbat. He's a rabbi. He's a religious guy. 20 years I'm going to his house with the car on Shabbat to, eat, to have Kiddush. He never told me don't drive. So he's using you as the crutch. Same exact thing of what's going to happen if this event with Boko Raton happens. It's not just about the thousand families that could potentially be poisoned by this missionary. It's about the millions of Jews that live in America. They're going to say, oh, the Dayan from Florida brought a missionary motivational speaker to Shul. Let's bring also a motivational speaker that happens to be missionary to our shul. Eventually, we're just going to bring the missionary with no motivation. And eventually, they're going to, what they're going to do is they're going to take the sign, instead of being Orthodox shul, they're going to say Orthodox church. And that's what's going to happen. This is not an exaggeration or a being fanatic. This is reality. This is This is where it gets to. It doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. So... Without being a good friend, there's no way that your your surroundings and even yourself are going to have a good life. Everyone will suffer as a result of you not rebuking. Every, you will suffer because you're taking on everyone's sins. And they're suffering because they have zero chance of getting to a good Olamaba. Zero. And if you're their neighbor, you're close to them, it's even worse. If you don't have the guts to tell him yourself by being a good friend, at the very least, why don't you act like a human being? Why don't you tell me, listen, this is what we do on Friday night. We have Kiddush. We don't go to the club. We don't go to the restaurant on Friday night. We have Kiddush at the house. We don't have arguments publicly in a supermarket with our spouses. We don't. You know, many, plenty of times you see people... Yeah either in person or on the phone, yelling and cursing each other. Yeah. Ah, well, ah, you feel like, whoa, they're, 
they're connected, these people, they want to kill each other, and they're public. And sometimes you get even proud of it. Like the guy thinks he's like in a movie, like he's funny, so like, you know, like make fun of his wife really, really loud and look around. Like anybody hear how funny that joke was? Like he thinks he's a comedian. Or the wife will do it to the husband. Like they think it's like, it's the most embarrassing thing in the world. Normally that happens in the checkout line. <laughs> so you've seen it. Yeah. So being a shachen ra, meaning that not only are you not rebuking, you're showing them yourself, you're showing bad behavior yourself. You're the one that's yelling at the wife at the checkout line. You're the one that's yelling at the other person on the other line. You're yelling at customer service. The guy is poor little guy in Indonesia or in India or something. He's trying to help you with your computer. You're yelling at him like he broke it. What did he do to you? Everyone is a hero on their computer or on their phone. Everyone's a superhero. You have an article, you publish an article, and it's not exactly their cup of tea. Everyone all of a sudden became Siskel and Ebert. They comment. Oh, you know, you should have said this. And you know, you should have said that. And you know, that word and not this. Everyone's a commentator all of a sudden. Okay, you give the lecture. I'll come to you. Everyone wants to give you criticism. They don't give compliments. They give criticism because everyone wants to be the criticizer. But to their friend next door, it's a Mechel Shabbat. Nothing. But on the computer, everyone's a superhero. Superhero criticizer, they... Make everything in the world. This is what we need to start applying to our life. Next point. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Alove ve'eno meshalem, Echad alove min ha'adam, Kelove min ha'makom, Shenemar alove rasha ve'lo yishalem, Ve'tzadik, Chonen ve'noten. So here we see that this is different than Aroet Anolad. Aroet Anolad means someone who sees the outcome of a deed. But here he's talking about something completely different. Here he says someone who borrows but doesn't pay back. What does someone borrowing and doesn't pay back have anything to do? How is that the opposite? So first and foremost, they give us a little bit of pirush. Here where they tell us that someone that's borrowing from a man... It's like someone that borrows from God. As it says, the wicked one borrows and does not pay while the righteous one is gracious and gives. So first and foremost, someone that's borrowing, especially in Judaism, it's very, very different than borrowing in any, any in the secular world or in the um, non-Jewish world. Because we have alachot, we have laws when it comes to, lent, to loans. First and foremost, you're never allowed to charge a Jew interest. Someone that charges another Jew interest has no share of the world to come, to that extent. It's a horrible, horrible sin. There's one exception. There's only one time that you are not only allowed, but according to Ravavadya and the rest of Chazal that talk about this specific issue, you're actually obligated. You should. Charge interest on the Jew. When? When he's a Mechel Shabbat. Why? Rav Vadya says, you charge him interest because he's not considered Jewish anymore. It's like a going. And a non-Jew, you have to charge him interest. 
can't just give them money for no reason. You have to charge them interest. It's a business. With a Jew, you're in essence doing a mitzvah. It's actually a bigger mitzvah to lend another Jew money than to give tzedakah. And the reason why is because when you give tzedakah, there's always an element of shame. The person that receives tzedakah is, is ashamed of receiving tzedakah. It's not fun to receive tzedakah. Regardless of whether it's $20 or $20 million, there's a little bit of element of shame. If you have, you know, just have shame. You're collecting tzedakah. Someone that comes to the Beknesset, he's not going, hey guys, I'm here to collect tzedakah. No, he says, you know, has the cup and he's asking for tzedakah. It's not, you know, it's not something that anyone's proud of. So there's an element of shame with tzedakah. But borrowing money, nobody's embarrassed. Of it. It's a business transaction. Hey, you just uh, made the new deal? Great, congratulations. Can I borrow $5,000? Oh, you just, oh yeah, I remember you told me that you got to get that deal. Did you get that deal? Yeah, you go, oh, great, can I borrow 10000 I need to pay this and that. All of a sudden you have all these bills. You heard your friend made money. You need you, you want to borrow money, but you feel a hundred percent comfortable asking for money. Why it's a business transaction. No one's ashamed to borrow money. But getting tzedakah, everybody's ashamed. Which is the reason why it's a mitzvah, a bigger mitzvah to lend money. And the reason why is because you don't have to put them to shame. The second thing is, is that also you become a partner with Hashem. Both in both cases you become a partner with Hashem. But with a uh, with um, with lending, it's even a, a bigger partner with Hashem than in tzedakah. Nonetheless, it's when you're lending money to another Jew, you're not allowed to charge interest. But if that Jew is a mechalel Shabbat, or does any other sin that cuts him out of the nation, not only can you charge him interest, you you should charge him interest, unless. This Jew is expected to do tshuva. And then you may have a problem. And this is the reason why really religious Jews try to stay away from lending money to non-religious Jews. It's not because they don't like non-religious Jews. It's because they're scared they're going to have to pay them back the interest. So the guy in the Shabbat, he borrowed three, four hundred thousand dollars from you. You charge him interest. You charge him ten points. Charge him ten thousand, you know, ten percent, thirty thousand a year. The guy borrowed money. Da da da. Over the next five years, you collected one hundred fifty thousand dollars from the guy. All of a sudden, four and a half years into it, you just found out this guy became a mini rabbi. He walks in paying you the. Check the monthly check, but he's got a beard, a hat, and he's a chassid. What do you do then? You have to pay him back the money. You have to give him back the money you charged them. You have to pay the interest back. Wow, it's not a fun, it's not a fun situation. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of religious people don't like to lend money with interest to non-religious people because it creates problems. Um, but. There are some religious people, or they call themselves religious, that lend money to other religious people, and sometimes to non-religious people, but they still charge them interest. In most cases, in some cases it's allowed, in most cases it's not allowed. And it's called shtariska. Shtariska means 
that in essence you're not really lending them money, but actually you're investing in the business. You're investing in the enterprise. Now, if let's say, for example, you came and you said, "Listen, I want to borrow three hundred thousand dollars," you have to give me collateral. So, let's say, for example, you said, "I'm going to borrow three hundred thousand dollars to buy this house." You buy, you, I give you the three hundred thousand dollars, and you know, you I give you the three hundred thousand dollars. But in essence, if you don't pay me back the money, I take the house. That's what mortgages, right? Okay. So. In essence, when you are borrowing, there is collateral. So I protect my downside as the lender. But if you're investing into a business, there's really limited protection. Because if you invest, let's say, into my business, also $300,000, but the business goes bust, the product that we made is unwelcomed in the market, the patent failed, something, it didn't work out, Really, all you have left is, you know, some proceeds from, you know, whatever assets you have. You have some printers, some computers, some desks. I don't know, a, uh, a few uh, a few cars, let's say, that the company owned. You have a few assets, the $300,000. Well, you know, you have $15,000 left. So, in essence, you lost 90% of the money, over 90% of the money, 95% of the money. So, you have a downside, a very, very big downside. So what some people do is they do something called a shtariska, which is partial loan, partial investment. Where part of the money they are lending you, and part of the money they're investing. Which means the kosher way to do it is that the part of the money that they're lending you, if the business, you're going to invest it, let's say, into some business enterprise. You want to borrow $300,000, and you want to invest it into a uh, new business of some kind. But... Let's say half the money, you have to pay them back regardless. Whether the business works out or not, it doesn't make a difference. You have to pay that money back because that's a loan. And it's a non-interest loan. They don't charge you interest. But the other part, the other hundred, let's say if it's 50-50, the other $150,000, they could potentially lose that money. But the upside on $150,000 is not just 5% or 10%. It's usually a much higher percent as if they are a partner in the business. So, but that part, they have a higher upside, but also a much higher downside. They could potentially lose the whole thing. So, the kosher way of doing it is exactly like I just told you guys, where partial is a loan, partial is an investment, or the entire thing is an investment. So, they have 100% loss potential. What some people do is a non-kosher shtariska, where in essence, they want to have 100% collateral, and they want to get the interest anyway. So in essence, they're telling you, listen, I'm going to lend you, let's say, I don't know, $100,000. And you have to pay me back the $100,000 back no matter what. Plus, you have to give me 10, 20% on my money. That is 100% sin on both ends. It's a sin for the lender and it's a sin for the borrower too. You're not allowed to borrow money on interest from another Jew. Both the sinners. And what does the Torah say about those sinners? They're both guaranteed to lose the money. At some point or another, they're both guaranteed to lose the money and the blessing they have in the money, at some point or another, Hashem will take all of that money. There'll be no blessing in the enterprise, there'll be no blessing in the money, they'll lose it. Maybe they won't lose it directly, they'll lose it indirectly. They'll make, let's say, $20,000 with this guy or they'll make their money back with this guy, but they'll lose $500,000 somewhere else. 
And I actually have a story like this. A couple of years ago, I had a call from a, uh, somebody. He told me he had a bunch of loans and this and that. A whole bunch of balagan. His whole life went upside down. He borrowed a bunch of money from a bunch of different people. All of a sudden, he found out that the investment that uh, he made was some type of big piece of real estate. The guy that he bought it from really wasn't the owner. So in essence, he cheated him out of, I don't know, like a million or two million dollars. And he's like, how could this be? I did tshuva, I'm religious, I'm this and I'm that. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't have a Kodesh or anything. But I'm thinking, to myself, how, how could something like this be? Like, you have to find out. Maybe, maybe there is an explanation for something like this. So I start asking more and more questions. Later on, I find out, I'm like, where did you get the money? It's like, oh, I borrowed it from 30 people. Okay. How did you borrow it? And he starts telling me the deals. I'm like, oh, not even one of these deals is allowed. All of them are sins. Which means that you deserve to, to lose the money and they all deserve to lose the money. And it's actually the best thing that could have happened to you. Money went to drain. Wow. Now, it's not exactly a fun thing to hear. And I said it a little softer than that. But the point being is that it's still true. All of them are sinners. All of them. And everyone lost money. So, when someone is borrowing, they have to know that there's rules. And that's why it says, when you borrow from a man, you have to treat it as if you're borrowing from God. Meaning that in essence, you have to know that there's, there's a, rules in the Torah. In essence, you are taking a, uh, a um, advance from Hashem. Hashem is going to give you the Panasa anyway, but you're taking an advance. You're borrowing from one of his children, according to his laws. But someone that doesn't pay back, why does it mention someone that doesn't pay back? He says, if you want to have a good life, you have to be the type of person that not only has a good eye, not only is a good friend, not only is a good neighbor, but you have to be the person that as soon as you have the ability to pay back a loan, you pay back immediately. You don't worry about whether he needs the money or not. Oh, he's already rich. He doesn't need the $3,000 that I borrowed from him. It's not your business. Your business is you borrowed from God. You followed law. You followed Torah. You borrowed money. You must pay back as soon as you have the ability. No, but he already has plenty. He doesn't care about the $3,000 or the $30,000 that I borrowed from him. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Like some people say, yeah, well, you know what? At least he stole from the rich people. What do you mean? How does that make it any right? Like people, you know, admire Robin Hood. You know, they have a whole cartoon and shows, legendary story. The guy's a thief. Oh, yeah, but he stole from the rich. And why does that make it any right? Like how does it make it correct that he stole from rich people? He's still a thief. He's still a thief. So for some reason... We've been taught that taking you know advantage of rich people is okay. It's not. So first and foremost, when you borrow money, you have to realize you have to pay back as soon as you can. Don't delay. It's you're fulfilling a mitzvah. Plus, you are going to have a good life. Otherwise, he says someone that is not doesn't pay. I mean, someone who borrows a uh, in, you know consistently borrowing money without an intention of paying back or borrowing money knowing that he can't pay back, he says you're guaranteed to have a bad path. You're guaranteed to have a bad life. 
Because you're constantly going to have to run away from people. You're constantly going to have to, like, lie. You know, what happens is they call your house, they call your business, somebody answers the phone, you don't want to talk to them because you're dodging them. So what happens? You tell people, no, no, tell them I'm not here. So now, not only have you turned this, a, uh, this loan into theft, because now you're not paying back, but on top of it, you're a liar, too. Midvar sheker tichak. And lies is one of the things that Hashem says, stay away from lies. Not even, not only don't lie, stay away from a lie. So now you've turned theft into lies also. It's just the situation gets worse and worse. So before you borrow money, have in mind, okay, can I actually pay this back? Like, do I have the ability to pay this back? Now, of course, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a businessman, there are going to be times you have to take certain risks. No one's telling you you can't take risks. There's all types of risks. There's all types of things you can do. But it always has to be calculated. Don't just take the risk because it's other people's money. Don't just be one of these people that takes advantage of the stupid American system, which is unlike any other system in the world, which allows people to take advantage of the government very easily. Pretty much what people do is... They borrow money from every single credit card they can. They borrow money from every bank that recognizes their social security number. <clears throat> they get all of these things and they have no intention whatsoever of paying this back. They buy something, they try to do a few things. It eventually doesn't work out because they spend most of their money on shoes and, you know, and, and, and suits and dresses and cars. Eventually, all the money dies out. So what do they do? Chapter 11, chapter 7, bankruptcy. Bankruptcy, restart, you build your credit over the next several years, let's start again. But now bankruptcy by itself, if the government allows it, it doesn't necessarily make it illegal. It's fine, you can do it according even to Jewish law, if you have no other option. But if you're doing it just because it's available to you, but in reality you don't need to declare bankruptcy, you're a thief. You're taking advantage of a system, you're a thief. You're a 100% thief. Many people do this with real estate, thinking they're, they're tzaddikim, and not only tzaddikim, they're uh, savvy. Like, oh look, I bought 10 pieces of property, real estate market went down, so I gave back 8 of them, and then I sold 2 to my brother, to my sister, to my this, to my that, and I declared bankruptcy, and I don't have to pay any money back. Okay, you're a thief. You are a thief. Why? Because if you had enough money to pay for those two, you should have actually used the proceeds to pay for the rest as much as you can. You can't just declare bankruptcy because you feel like it. it just, they cost them money. So, this is when someone has Yirat Shamayim, when someone has fear of Hashem, and they realize that every loan, it's like they borrowed from God. Then the loan changes. <laughs> then you're not worried about whether the loan says Bank of America or TD Bank, or, uh, you know, Steve Robertson. doesn't make a difference where it's from. You know it's from Hashem, it, it, you have to comply with the law. Not the law just of, of, of the nation, of the land, but law of Shemaim. Rabbi Elazar Omer, Levra. Levra. Rabbi Elazar says, a wicked heart. What's the last bad trait that someone must stay away from? He says, stay away from having an evil heart. And Rabban Yochanan says, Rabban Yochanan says, 
Rabbi Elazar says, Rabbi Yochanan says, I prefer the words of, of Elazar ben Arach to all of your words, for his words include your words. Meaning that an evil, a wicked heart applies as uh, all of those other things that each one of you mentioned. He says, Rabbi Elazar ben said, bad, evil eye. Then you said a uh, bad friend, bad neighbor, doesn't pay back loans. All of these things are included in an evil heart. Someone that has an evil heart, he does all of those things. In order to do any of those things, you must have an evil heart. So, what is really an evil heart? The Gemara says Levra is in essence the Yetzirah. One of the uh, prophets said that at the end of times Hashem is going to replace our heart made of stone with a heart made of flesh. What does it mean heart made of stone? Anyway, check. Usually the heart's not made out of stone. <coughs> meaning a heart made of stone meaning that we have a Yetzirah. We have a Yetzirah with an evil inclination, and Hashem is going to replace our evil inclination with a good inclination, meaning we're not going to have any enticement to sin anymore once the Mashiach comes. But until then, we have to deal with the Yetzirah. In Gemara Masechet Sukkah, page 52b, it says, if the Menuval, which is another name for the Yetzirah, comes to you, drag him to the Bet Midrash. Because in the Masechet Brachot, in Gemara Masechet Brachot, it says, that if the Yetzirah comes to you, you have an enticement to sin. Enticement to sin with a woman that's not yours. Enticement to go against Hashem in one way or another. First thing you got to do is realize that Hashem created the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah is stronger than you. He's bigger than you. He's smarter than you. He's more knowledgeable than you in every way, shape, or form. He's stronger than you in every shape, or way, or form. You can't beat him. In reality, you can't beat him. So, what are we doing here? Oh, Shem said, Barat Yetzara, Barat Torah Tavlin. I created the Yetzara, but I also created a potion that can beat him. You can't beat him, but the potion can. What's the potion? Torah. Torah can beat him. That's the potion. So the Gemara in Masechet Sukkah says, you have an inclination to sin. Yetzirah came to you, drag him to the kolel, drag him to the yeshiva, drag him to the beknesset where you're going to be learning Torah because that's the, that's the potion that's going to kill him. It's the only thing that can beat him. You by yourself, you can't beat him. You can't beat him. Don't even think, no, 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 I can beat him. You can't beat him. It's impossible. He's smarter, he's stronger, he's bigger, he's faster, he's everything. Only thing that can beat him is the Torah. And not necessarily that the Torah by itself. If you just say with the book of Torah, no, no, it's not, not going to help you. It's just going to be a heavy book of Torah. Meaning that as a result of you studying, as a result of you obeying and complying the Torah that Hashem wrote, Hashem says, oh, you like my Torah? Okay, I'll go fight him for you. Mm. Torah by itself can't do anything. But Hashem can. Oh, you fulfilled my mitzvot. 
Oh, you like learning my Torah? Okay, okay, Yitzhak, go, go, shoo, shoo away. You're bigger than them, but to me, it's just a little angel. Shoo away from him, he's a tzaddik. Shoo away from her, she's a tzaddikah. Look, she covers her hair. Look, she's modest. Shoo away from her. Shoo away. And that's one of the main things that we need to understand. First thing first is to know Yetzirah is much bigger than us, much stronger than us, much everything. But we have a potion. So when you don't learn Torah, or you don't fulfill mitzvot, you're already lost. It's impossible for you to overcome your evil inclination. Meaning it's impossible for you to have a good heart. You may do some good things. Like I said before, you may be a generous person. You like to give tzedakah. That doesn't make you a good person, though. It makes you generous. But even Nebuchadnezzar was generous. And he killed hundreds of millions of Jews. Not tens of millions, not single millions, hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions, much, much, much bigger than the Holocaust. And he gave Stakah. It's right in the book of Daniel. He gave Stakah. Does that make him good? No. Just makes him give it Stakah. So what? Give the It's not your money anyway. Hashem gave it to you. You can't take pride of giving something that's not really yours. So without Torah, you, you only are, you're left with a stone heart. It's impossible for you to have a heart of flesh. Excuse me, what is the other name for Yisrael? He has seven different names. One of them is uh, uh, Ra. That's what Moses called him, Ra. How do you say it? Ra, ra, like R A H, I guess. Rish. What the? For the rish. Uh, um, also, they call Menuval. There's several different names for him. Satan, Malachamavit, Yetzara. Several different names for him. Um, there's a Gemara that talks about there's seven different types of names for him, one of them being Ra, that Moses called him, and why did Moses choose to call him Ra? Each one of the uh, major forefathers had a different name for him. And they explain why they called him that. In one place they say in the Gemara that the Satan is like a fly on your heart. Fly in your heart. If you ever notice, flies, they never go away. Until you kill them, they never go away. You shoot them 500 times, it still goes back. Yeah. You just made yourself a nice dinner... Your wife slaved over the dinner, everything. Fly on top of the steak. Yeah. Five minutes ago, he was on top of the dog poop outside. Yeah, now was. he's on top of your steak. Yeah, he was. <laughs> it's a reality. Yeah. You shoot him. Goes back to the steak. How annoying is this? Uh, is this? Is this fly? He just keeps going back and until you kill him. He's there. He's not leaving. It's the most annoying thing in the world. He says the same thing. Gemara says same thing with a fly, uh, the Satan. It's the same thing like a fly on your heart. No matter how many times you overcome him, no matter how many times you beat him, he keeps coming back. Oh, you learned Gemara today? Okay, so tomorrow I'm going to convince you not to learn. Oh, you overcame the desire to, you know, with your eyes. You didn't look at any immodest woman? Okay, tomorrow I'm going to come back. I'm going to be a prettier woman. Oh, today you were generous? Okay, tomorrow I'm going to give you someone that you're going to question whether to give him tzedakah or not. He's going to constantly come back, constantly come back. He's going to be a fly on your heart. He's never leaving. 
So at least if we know, we have a chance to beat him. Right. Knowing he's not going away, but at least we know that every time we got a little closer. <laughs> so, and that's how we build a strong heart. Also in that same Gemara, by the way, in Masechet Sukkah, page 52b, in 52a, it says that what Hashem, it's a prophecy of what Hashem promises all of the tzaddikim of what's going to happen at the end of times. After the Mashiach comes, Hashem promises to take the Yetzirah, take the Satan, and slaughter him in front of everyone. Now, in front of the tzaddikim, the Yetzirah is going to look like a mountain. Big, big mountain. In front of the Reshaim, it's going to look like a small, tiny little hair. So the first time I heard this, I'm like, what? Mountain, hair, what is this? Analogies, symbolism, like, what does this even mean, Bechlal? Like, what is slaughtering? It's kind of, sounds like a little bit of a offensive. <laughs> it sounds a little vicious. Like we're retarded. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mountain, why is it Sadiqim having a mountain? If anything, they should have the hair. So it seems like, here's the thing. What does Chazal mean here? The righteous, they didn't just, they weren't born righteous. They became righteous. Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't born Moshe Rabbeinu. He became Moshe Rabbeinu. Yitro, which is this week's parasha, parashat Yitro. He wasn't born Yitro the tzaddik, kadosh, that had Ruach HaKodesh. He was an idol worshiper. He was the biggest idol worshiper in history. But he became a holy Jew. And after this week's parasha, when he comes and he says to Moshe, I heard what your God did. I heard what the God of Israel did. And I want to be part of the nation now. And he even gives Moshe Rabbeinu advice of how to start a judicial system, which we learned last year, if you remember. But after that, you get something, you learn something baffling. Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Yitro. He says, no, don't go. Don't leave us. Stay with us. Where's he going? You found out the truth. You left all the idol worship. You came, you became a Jew. You went through the whole conversion system with the recognized Bendin. <laughs> Everything is good. Orthodox conversion. Where are you going? What does Yitro say? How could I have the truth and not tell my people? Wow. All my people back in Midian. They're all idol worshippers, miskinim, poor people. I'm going to let them all stay idol worshippers? What kind of person do you think I am? Think I'm an evil person, selfish? Just worry about my neshama? No. I'm going to go back there, go see my children, my friends, my neighbors. I'm going to go do kiruv. And that's what he did. And Chazal says he succeeded and he converted everyone. Wow. Everyone converted to Judaism and eventually all of them came to Eretz Yisrael. They met up with Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael. Took a while. But he actually converted everyone. Wow. Didn't know that. But he wasn't born Yitro the Kadosh. He wasn't born with a parasha named after him. He was born idol worshiper. That's the difference. And that's one of the things that the tzaddikim, they weren't born tzaddikim. They had to become tzaddikim. They had to overcome this fly on their heart every day. 
Every day this annoying fly on their heart. Every day this Yetzirah is on their heart. Every day the Yetzirah wants them to steal. Every day the Yetzirah wants them to cheat. Every day the Yetzirah wants them to lie. Every day the Yetzirah wants them to idol worship or invite a missionary. Because it sounds interesting. And it sounds motivational. Every day the Yetzirah is there. And the bigger you are in Torah, the bigger your Yetzirah. Don't... Be confused. It's not like the big Moshe Rabbeinu has no Yetzirah. No, his Yetzirah is so much bigger than yours that yours looks like a midget next to his. It's a different type of Yetzirah. It's an evolved Yetzirah. So they didn't become Tzadikim overnight. And that's why when finally when the Mashiach comes, when Hashem slaughters the Yetzirah, they're going to say, oh, it's like a mountain to them because... Each day they overcame. Each day a little more. Each day a little more. Eventually when they finally got to see the Mashiach, it was like, finally the Yetzirah is gone. But it's like, it was been a big burden my whole life. So it looks, it's a huge mountain that you overcame. You find, you climbing and climbing. You don't look back. You climb and you climb and you climb and you fall a little bit and you climb again. And you climb and you climb and you climb and you climb. And eventually when you get to the top and you look back, it's like, wow, I really did all that? That's going to be the Tzadikim. So the Kiva gonna finally arrive and see the Mashiach get slaughtered and say, Wow, we're here. We're here. I have a love of I have eternity. What are the Rashaim gonna say? They're gonna look at the Satan and it's gonna be like hair. Small, tiny little hair. And Hashem is gonna tell them, You didn't even try. To overcome a Yetzirah of just day to day. You didn't even eat kosher once for the day. You had an option to go to McDonald's, not kosher, or go to a kosher burger place. Eat the kosher chocolate or the non-kosher chocolate. You had a choice every day. It's not that easy. It wasn't, uh, it was the kosher chocolate was $5 and the non-kosher was a penny. No, this was five, this was five. It's the same thing. But you intentionally didn't care. You intentionally didn't try. And that's why your Yetzirah is tiny. And look, because of this tiny Yetzirah that you couldn't even overcome, that you didn't even overcome, that you didn't care enough to overcome, you're just going to watch the Yetzirah get destroyed, but you're going to the same place as him. You're not going to enjoy this Mashiach. But you're going to see that if you would have overcome something small, you could have enjoyed it like the tzaddikim. You could have enjoyed it, but you're not. And that's one of the worst possible things that can happen to somebody at the end of days is to see that they were only a hair away from winning. They're not like the tzaddikim that had a mountain to overcome. They had a hair, a tiny little tikkun. Just don't eat this burger. Just stop driving on Shabbat. Just learn Torah 15 minutes a day. Big deal. Just cover your hair with a scarf or with a hat. Just uninvite the missionary. (laughs) One tiny thing. Okay, it's a little embarrassing at first. Okay, it's a little uncomfortable at first. But it's just a hair in comparison to the mountain of the tzaddikim. Try. How are you going to face it when you realize there was only one hair away from winning? 
the guy that's in last place, who never even tried, he's not as miserable as the guy that's in second place. The guy that's in second place, he's more miserable than everybody. He says, I was one hair away from being first place. No one ever remembers second place. I know, I don't know, a month ago, I don't know, however long it was, they had a, a Super Bowl. Yeah. They watched, everybody watched Super Bowl, and, well, Hashem, we didn't, but the people are competing, fighting, this, that. Now, of course, I asked people who won the Super Bowl, I'm sure everybody would know. But if I asked you who was second place five years ago, no one would remember. Because no one cares about second place. But if I asked you who was the last place team a few years ago, most people say, oh yeah, it was Detroit or whatever team was at that time was last place. Usually people say, yeah, yeah, some team, who cares? They used to be a bad team, now they're a good team. Now the bad team, the, the one that was last place, they were last place, they don't really care that much. Who's the most miserable? Second place. Second place, yeah. The one that made it to the Super Bowl but didn't win. Missed it for a hair. The one that came to this world with everything. You came as a Jew. That's already being a winner. You came with a lotto ticket. You came with a lotto ticket. But you didn't scratch it. So it expired. You had a winning lotto ticket. You had a winning lotto ticket in your hand. You were born a Jew. You converted to Judaism. You did something right in your life. You got here. You got the lotto ticket. Your ticket is definitely the winner. It's not maybe the winner. It's definitely the winner. Seven and a half billion people. Only 15 million or so are Jews. Out of the 15 or so million, 3 million are religious. You happen to be one of them. You're guaranteed to be a winner. You have the winning lotto ticket. But you decide to lend somebody money with interest. And he was a Jew. But you decided to be a rabbi, a kila. But you brought a missionary that was a motivational speaker. And a few people from the kila converted to Christianity because of you. Mm. Or their kids did. That's heavy. You were a rabbi. You were Dayan. You wrote articles, you wrote books, you had this, you had everything. But one Jew lost his Allah because of you. You had the winning lotto ticket. You had. It all becomes past tense. You had the winning lotto ticket. You had it. But it expired. It expired worthless. In the book of Samuel, it says something very relevant. Or Samuel, what is it? Samuel 1, chapter 2, verse 9. Ragle chasidag yishmol reshaim b'choshech yidamu, ki lo bekoach yigbar ish. He guards the steps of his devout ones, but the wicked are stilled in darkness, for not through strength does man prevail. In so many words, Hashem says, I'll give siyat dishmaya, I'll give assistance from heaven for people that are devoted to Him. 
You try to do tshuva. You try to do the will of Hashem. Hashem says, I'll take care of you. But I need to see you try. Okay, they say, no, no, I put a keep on, that's okay. No, that's not enough. Putting a keep is nice. Congratulations, you put a keep on. But there's a lot more than just a keep Oh, no, I put a tzitzit. Okay, there's a lot more than putting tzitzit. Oh, I grew a beard. Okay, that's free. Osama Bilal also had a beard. It's always the same joke, but it's always funny. Because it's real. But the thing is, though, and it's one of the five. But the thing is, though, is that it's not enough. There's more. There's more. There's more. But if you're really devoted to Hashem, devoted to Hashem, Hashem says, I'll help you. No problem. But just like I help you, the Reshaim Bachoshidamu. The Reshaim will go the exact opposite end. The Reshaim, they'll go to the bottom. I'm going to take them down. Interestingly enough, one of the prophecies is that at the end of times we're going to have a war. There's going to be a Gog Magog war. All of the nations are going to fight each other, eventually fight Am Yisrael. Mashiach is going to come. But then there's going to be a different type of war. There's also going to be a war against the Mashiach himself. By who? None other than Jews. Jews are going to fight the Mashiach. Which Jews are these? They're called Erev Rav. The Erev Rav are going to fight the Mashiach. These are wicked Jews that sometimes pretend to be tzaddikim. Now here in this verse, we have a little bit of an interesting hint. That sometimes the wicked are not who we think they are. Sometimes, of course, listen, someone that goes against Hashem on a regular basis is not exactly friendly with Hashem. But sometimes we're surprised at who the wicked are. When it says, that the wicked ones, Hashem is going to put them into darkness, He's going to punish them. The Rashi Tavot, the first letter of each one of these three words, is Resh, in Reshaim, Bet in Bechoshech, and Yud in Idamu. Spelling, Rabbi. And this is one of the things that is makes this generation as confusing as can possibly be. When sometimes you have people that in essence are supposed to be the leaders. Superheroes. The Moses. He's the biggest, biggest Rasha of all. So this is very important for each of us to know that he also has a Yetzirah. But we're still responsible to make decisions. You can't just say, oh no, no, he has a Yetzirah, so you made a bad decision. Okay, me as Yetzirah made a bad decision. That doesn't necessarily mean that I have to live with this bad decision. 
I still have the responsibility of being, having a good eye. So I gave him kaf schut. Okay, but he keeps making bad decisions. Okay, I have a responsibility of being a good friend. Okay, so I have to tell him. I have to rebuke him. Hey, listen, you made a bad decision last week and you're making a bad decision this week. I have the responsibility of being a good neighbor. So I have a responsibility of seeing the nolad, the outcome. Seeing that if we continue making these bad decisions, eventually there's consequences. Yeah, there's always, always consequences. Mm-hmm. So Everything we do say. This is an important thing for each and every single one of us to understand. Because at the root of everything, each one of us has to take responsibility for ourselves, responsibilities for our nation as well. You can't just like plead the fifth and say nothing. Oh no, no, I didn't see, I didn't hear, I didn't know. You still have to take responsibility for your actions. You have to take responsibility for your community. You have to take responsibility for your family. You can't just let the Mashkiach continue without being the Mashkiach on him too. The Mashkiach also needs to have a Mashkiach. Everyone has to have a boss of some kind. But once we see that someone's rogue and someone just goes off and just start doing whatever they... You can't, connect, you can't stay connected to it. You cannot stay connected to it. So, Rabban Yochanan is saying... The root of a good life is having a good heart. You want to develop every good quality. Every good quality has to start with a good heart. Meaning, you have to love Hashem. You have to love His Torah. You have to want to have a purpose. But the same token, the root of every single bad character trait, the root of every single problematic life, is an evil heart. When you have an evil heart, you're going to be jealous in a very, very bad way. You're going to be envious in a horrendous way. You're going to never rebuke anyone because you are just don't care enough about them. You're never going to be the good neighbor because obviously if you don't care enough about people to rebuke them, then you definitely don't care enough even about yourself to live a righteous life. And this can lead you to more and more sins, even to such an extent that you make such a simple sin like not paying people back. Which is relatively an easy mitzvah. You took a hundred, give back a hundred. You took a thousand, give back a thousand. Obviously, if you have no way of paying it back, it's a different story. It's not considered a sin if you have no way of paying it back. It's out of your control and you you were careful but you made a mistake or something just didn't work out and you can't pay back right now. That's not a sin. But if you knowingly borrowed and knowingly, knowing you knew that you're not going to be able to pay back, you're a thief. And it's a relatively easy sin to not make. Just don't borrow. But why, why would you borrow? Because of the very same reason that we started. Because you're constantly looking at other, other people's stuff. You're seeing he has a brand new car, so you want to have a brand new car. But you can't afford the brand new car. So what do you do? You borrow money that you can't afford to buy a brand new car. You saw him putting an extension to his house. 
So you're putting an extension to your house. But you can't afford that extension in your house. Yeah, but everyone wants to catch up with the Joneses. Everyone wants to look like they have and they this and, they, and everyone lives above their means. And eventually declares bankruptcy. Why? Stop looking elsewhere. Look in the mirror. The root of all these problems is a wicked heart. Not wicked heart where someone is a murderer. Wicked heart in the sense that you're just steering the wrong way where you're allowing the Yetzirah to make the decisions for you. Yetzirah is taking control over your heart and you're becoming pretty much everything's on autopilot. Only problem is, the auto is the Yetzirah. Rabban Yochanan says, you want to have a good life? It all starts.